This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Risk Profession by Donald E. Westlake. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs one hour, four minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Risk Profession by Donald E. Westlake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The men who did dangerous work had a special kind of insurance policy. But when somebody wanted to collect on that policy, the claims investigator suddenly became a member of the risk profession. Mr. Henderson called me into his office my third day back in Tangiers. That was a day and a half later than I'd expected. Roving claims investigators for Tangiers Mutual Insurance Corporation don't usually get to spend more than 36 consecutive hours at home base. Henderson was jovial but stern. That meant he was happy with the job I'd just completed and that he was pretty sure I'd find some crooked shenanigans on this next assignment. That didn't please me. I'm basically a plain-living type, and I hate complications. I almost wished for a second there that I was back on fire and theft in Greater New York. But I knew better than that. As a roving claim investigator, I avoided the more stultifying paperwork inherent in this line of work, and had the additional luxury of an expense account nobody ever questioned. It made working for a living almost worthwhile. When I was settled in the chair beside his desk, Henderson said, That was good work you did on Luna, Ged. Saved the company a pretty pence. I smiled modestly and said, Thank you, sir and reflected to myself for the thousandth time that the company could do worse than split that saving with the guy who made it possible. Me, in other words. Got a tricky one this time, Ged, said my boss. He had done his back padding. Now we got down to business. He peered keenly at me, or at least as keenly as a round-faced, tiny-eyed fat man can peer. What do you know about the risk profession retirement plan? he asked me. I've heard of it, I said truthfully. That's about all. He nodded. Most of the policies are sold off-planet, of course. It's a form of insurance for non-insurables. Spaceship crews, asteroid prospectors, people like that. I see, I said unhappily. I knew right away this meant I was going to have to go off-Earth again. I'm a 1G boy all the way. Gravity changes get me in the solar plexus. I get G-sick at the drop of an elevator. Here's the way it works, he went on, either not noticing my sad face or choosing to ignore it. The client pays a monthly premium. He can be as far ahead or as far behind in his payments as he wants. The policy has no lapse clause, just so he's all paid up by the target date. The target date is a retirement age, 45 or above, chosen by the client himself. After the target date, he stops paying premiums, and we begin to pay him a monthly retirement check, the amount determined by the amount paid into the policy, his age at retiring, and so on. Clear? I nodded, looking for the gimmick that made this a paying proposition for good old Tangier's Mutual. 
The double RP, that's what we call it around the office here, assures the client that he won't be reduced to panhandling in his old age, should his other retirement plans fall through. For belt prospectors, of course, this means the big strike, which may be one in a hundred find. For the man who never does make that big strike, this is something to fall back on. He can come home to earth and retire with a guaranteed income for the rest of his life. I nodded again, like a good company man. Of course, said Henderson, emphasizing this point with an upraised chubby finger, these men are still uninsurables. This is a retirement plan only, not an insurance policy. There is no beneficiary other than the client himself. And there was the gimmick. I knew a little something of the actuarial statistics concerning uninsurables, particularly belt prospectors. Not many of them lived to be forty-five, and the few who would survive the belt and come home to collect the retirement wouldn't last more than a year or two. A man who's spent the last twenty or thirty years on low-G asteroids just shrivels up after a while when he tries to live on Earth. It needed a company like Tangier's Mutual to dream up a racket like that. The term uninsurables to most insurance companies means those people whose jobs or habits make them too likely as prospects for obituaries. To Tangier's Mutual, uninsurables are people who have money the company can't get at. Now, said Henderson importantly, we come to the problem at hand. He ruffled up his up-to-now neat in-basket and finally found the folder he wanted. He studied the blank exterior of this folder for a few seconds, pursing his lips at it, and said, one of our clients under the double RP was a man named Jafe McCann. Was? I echoed. He squinted at me, then nodded at my sharpness. That's right. He's dead. He sighed heavily and tapped the folder with all those pudgy fingers. Normally, he said, that would be the end of it. File closed. However, this time, there are complications. Naturally. Otherwise, he wouldn't be telling me about it. But Henderson couldn't be rushed, and I knew it. I kept the alert look on my face and thought of other things while waiting for him to get to the point. Two weeks after Jafe McCann's death, Henderson said, we received a cash return form on his policy. A cash return form? I'd never heard of such a thing. It didn't sound like anything Tangier's Mutual would have anything to do with. We never return cash. It's something special in this case, he explained. You, you see, this isn't an insurance policy. It's a retirement plan, and the client can withdraw from the retirement plan at any time and have 75% of his paid-up premiums returned to him. It's, uh, the law in plans such as this. Oh, I said. That explained it. A law that had snuck through the World Finance Code Commission while the insurance lobby wasn't looking. But you see the point, said Henderson. This cash return form arrived two weeks after the client's death. You said there weren't any beneficiaries, I pointed out. Of course, but the form was sent in by the man's partner, one Ab Carpin. McCann left a handwritten will bequeathing all his possessions to Carpin. Since, according to Carpin, this was done before McCann's death, the premium money cannot be considered part of the policy, but as part of McCann's cash on hand. And Carpin wants it. It can't be that much, can it? I asked. I was trying my best to point out to him that the company would spend more than it would save if it sent me all the way out to the asteroids, a prospect I could feel coming and one which I wasn't ready to cry Hosanna over. 
McCann died, Henderson said ponderously, at the age of fifty-six. He had set his retirement age at sixty. He took out the policy at the age of thirty-four, with monthly payments of fifty credits. Figure it out for yourself. I did, in my head, and came up with a figure of thirteen thousand and two hundred credits. Seventy-five percent of that would be nine thousand and nine hundred credits. Call it ten thousand credits, even. I had to admit it. It was worth the trip. I see, I said sadly. Now, said Henderson, the conditions, the circumstances of McCann's death are somewhat suspicious. And so is the cash return form itself. There's a chance of forgery? One would think so, he said. But our handwriting experts have worn themselves out with that form, comparing it with every other single scrap of McCann's writing they can find. And their conclusion is that not only is it genuinely McCann's handwriting, but it is McCann's handwriting at age fifty-six. So McCann must have written it, I said, under duress, do you think? I have no idea, said Henderson complacently. That's what you're supposed to find out. Oh, there's just one more thing. I did my best to make my ears perk. I told you that McCann's death occurred under somewhat suspicious circumstances. Yes, I agreed. You did. McCann and Carpin, he said, have been partners, unincorporated, of course, for the last fifteen years. They had found small, rare metal deposits now and again, but they had never found that one big strike all the belt prospectors waste their lives looking for. Not until the day before McCann died. Aha, I said. Then they found the big strike. Exactly. And McCann's death? Accidental. Sure, I said. What, what proof have we got? None. The body is lost in space, and law is few and far between that far out. So all we've got is this guy Carpin's word for how McCann died, is that it? That's all we have so far. Sure. And now you want me to go on out there and find out what's cooking and see if I can maybe save the company ten thousand credits. Exactly, said Henderson. The copter took me to the spaceport west of Cairo, and there I boarded the good ship Demeter for Luna City and points out. I loaded up on G-sickness pills, and they worked fine. I was sick as a dog. By the time we got to Atronic City, my insides had grown resigned to their fate. As long as I didn't try to eat, my stomach would leave me alone. Atronic City was about as depressing as a Turkish bath with all the lights on. It stood on a chunk of rock a couple of miles thick, and it looked like nothing more in this world than a welder's practice range. From the outside, Atronic City is just a derby-shaped dome of nickel-iron, black and kind of dirty-looking. I suppose a transparent dome would have been more fun, but the builders of the company cities in the asteroids were businessmen, and they weren't concerned with having fun. There's nothing to look at outside the dome but chunks of rock and the blackness of space anyway. And you've got all this cheap iron floating around in the vicinity, and all a dome's supposed to do is keep the air in. Besides, though the belt isn't as crowded as a lot of people think, there is quite a lot of debris rushing here and there, bumping into things, and a transparent dome would just get all scratched up, not to mention punctured. From the inside, Atronic City is even jollier. 
There's the top level, directly under the dome, which is mainly parking area for scooters and tuggers of various kinds, plus the office shacks of the assayer's office, the entry authority, the industry troopers, and so on. The next three levels have all been burned into the bowels of the planetoid. Level two is the atronics plant, and a noisy plant it is. Level three is the shopping and entertainment area grocery stores and clothing stores and movie theaters and bars. And level four is housing. Two rooms and kitchen for the unmarried, four rooms and kitchen plus one room for each child for the married. All of these levels have one thing in common. Square corners painted olive drab. The total effect of the place is suffocating. You feel like you're stuck in the middle of a stack of packing crates. Most of the people living in Atronics City work, of course, for International Atronics Incorporated. The rest of them work in the service occupations, running the bars and grocery stores and so on that keep the company employees alive and relatively happy. Wages come high in the places like Atronics City. Why not? The raw materials come practically for free. And as for working conditions, well, take a for instance. How do you make a vacuum tube? You fiddle with the innards and surround it all with glass. And how do you get the air out? No problem, boy. There wasn't any air in there to begin with. At any rate, there I was at Atronic City. That was as far as Demeter would take me. Now, while the ship went on to Ludlam City and Chemisant City and the other asteroid business towns, my two suitcases and I dribbled down the elevator to my hostelry on Level 4. Have you ever taken an elevator ride when the gravity is practically non-existent? Well, don't. You see, the elevator manages to sink faster than you do. It isn't being lowered down to level four, it's being pulled down. What this means is that the suitcases have to be lashed down with the straps provided, and you and the operator have to hold on tight to the hand grips placed here and there around the wall. Otherwise, you'd clonk your head on the ceiling. But we got to level four at last, and off I went with my suitcases and the operator's directions. The suitcases weighed about half an ounce each out here, and I felt as though I weighed the same. Every time I raised a foot, I was sure I was about to go sailing into a wall. Local citizens eased by me, their feet occasionally touching the iron pavement as they soared along, and I gave them all dirty looks. Level four was nothing but walls and windows. The iron floor went among these walls and windows in a straight line, bisecting other streets at perfect right angles, and the iron ceiling sixteen feet up was lined with a double row of fluorescent tubes. I was beginning to feel claustrophobic already. The Chalmers Hotel, named for an Atronics Vice President, had received my advance registration, which was nice. I was shown to a second-floor room. Nothing on level four had more than two stories, and was left to unpack my suitcase as best I may. I had decided to spend a day or two at Atronic City before taking a scooter out to Ab Carpin's claim. Atronic City had been Carpin's and McCann's home base. All of McCann's premium payments had been mailed from here, and the normal mailing address for both of them was GPO, Atronic City. I wanted to know as much as possible about Ab Carpin before I went out to see him, and Atronic City seemed like the best place to get my information. But not today. Today my stomach was very unhappy and my head was on sympathy strike. Today I was going to spend my time exclusively in bed, trying not to float up to the ceiling. 
The Mapping and Registry Office, it seemed to me the next day, was the best place to start. This was where prospectors filed their claims, but it was a lot more than that. The waiting room of the M&R was the unofficial club of the asteroid prospectors. This is where they met with one another, talked together about the things that prospectors discuss, and made and dissolved their transient partnerships. In this way, Carpin and McCann were unusual. They had maintained their partnership for fifteen years. That was about sixty times longer than most such arrangements lasted. Searching the asteroid chunks for rare and valuable metals is basically pretty lonely work, and it's inevitable that the prospectors will, every once in a while, get hungry for human company and decide to try a team operation. But at the same time, work like this attracts people who don't get along very well with human company. So the partnerships come and go, and the hatreds flare and are forgotten, and the normal prospecting team lasts an average of three months. At any rate, it was to the mapping and registry office that I went first. And since that office was up on the first level, I went by elevator. Riding up in that elevator was a heck of a lot more fun than riding down. The elevator whipped up like mad. The floor pressed against the soles of my feet, and it felt almost like good old earth for a second or two there. But then the elevator stopped, and I held on tight to the hand grips to keep from shooting through the top of the blasted thing. The operator, a phlegmatic sort, gave me directions to the M&R, and off I went, still trying to figure out how to sail along as gracefully as the locals. The mapping and registry office occupied a good-sized shack over near the dome wall, next to the entry lock. I pushed open the door and went on in. The waiting room was cozy and surprisingly large, large enough to comfortably hold the six maroon leather sofas scattered here and there on the pale green carpet, flanked by bronze ashtray stands. There were only six prospectors here at the moment, chatting together in two groups of three, and they all looked alike grizzled, ageless, watery-eyed, their clothing clean but baggy. I passed them and went on to the desk at the far end, behind which sat a young man in official gray, slowly turning the crank of a microfilm reader. He looked up at my approach. I flashed my company identification and asked to speak to the manager. He went away, came back, and ushered me into an office which managed to be spartan and sumptuous at the same time. The walls had been plastic-painted in textured brown, the iron floor had been lushly carpeted in gray, and the desk had been covered with a simulated wood coating. The manager, a man named Teeking, went well with the office. His face and hands were spare and lean, but his uniform was immaculate, covered with every curling cue the regulations allowed. He welcomed me politely but curiously, and I said, I, I wonder if you know a prospector named Ab Carpin? Carpin? Of course. He and old Jafe McCann. Pity about McCann. I hear he got killed. Yes, he did. And that's what you're here for, eh? He nodded sagely. I didn't know the Belt Boys could get insurance, he said. It isn't exactly that, I said. This concerns a retirement plan, and, well, the details don't matter, which I hoped would end his curiosity in that line. I was hoping you could give me some background on Carpin, and on McCann, too, for that matter." He grinned a bit. You saw the men sitting outside? I nodded. Then you've seen Carpin and McCann. Exactly the same. 
It doesn't matter if a man's thirty or sixty or what. It doesn't matter what he looked like before he came out here. If he's been here a few years, he looks exactly like the bunch you saw outside there. That's appearance, I said. What I was looking for was personality. Same thing, he said. All of them, close-mouthed, antisocial, fiercely independent, incurably romantic, always convinced that the big strike is just a piece of rock away. McCann, now, he was a bit more realistic than most. He'd be the one I'd expect to take out a retirement policy. A real pence-pincher, that one. Though I shouldn't say it, as he's dead, but that's the way he was. Brighter than most belt boys when it came to money matters. I've seen him haggle over a new piece of equipment for their scooter or some repair work or some such thing, and he was a wonder to watch. And Carpin? I asked him. A prospector, he said, as though that answered my question. Same as everybody else. Not as sharp as McCann when it came to money. That's why all the money stuff in the partnership was handled by McCann. But Carpin was one of the sharpest boys in the business when it came to mineralogy. He knew rocks you and I never heard of. And most times he knew them by sight. Almost all of the belt boys are college grads. You've got to know what you're looking for out here and what it looks like when you've found it. But Carpin has practically all of them beat. He's sharp. Sounds like a good team, I said. I guess that's why they stayed together so long, he said. They complimented each other. He leaned forward, the inevitable prelude to a confidential remark. I'll tell you something off the record, mister, he said. Those two were smarter than they knew. Their partnership was never legalized. It was never anything more than a piece of paper. And there's a bunch of fellows around here mighty unhappy about that today. Jafe McCann is the one who handled all the money matters, like I said. He's got IOUs all over town. And they can't collect from Carpin? He nodded. Jafe McCann died just a bit too soon. He was sharp and cheap, but he was honest. If he'd lived, he would have repaid all his debts, I'm sure of it. And if this strike they made is as good as I hear, he would have been able to repay them with no trouble at all. I nodded somewhat impatiently. I had the feeling by now that I was talking to a man who was one of those who had a Jafe McCann I.O.U. in his pocket. "'How long has it been since you've seen Carpin?' I asked him, wondering what Carpin's attitude and expression was now that his partner was dead. "'Oh, Lord, not for a couple of months,' he said. "'Not since they went out together the last time and made that strike.' "'Didn't Carpin come in to make his claim?' "'Not here. Over to Chemisant City.' That was the nearest m &R to the strike. Oh, that was a pity. I would have liked to have known if there had been a change of any kind in Carpin since his partner's death. I'll tell you what the situation is, I said with a false air of truthfulness. We have some misgivings about McCann's death. Not suspicions, exactly. Just misgivings. The timing is what bothers us. You mean because it happened just after the strike? That's it. I answered frankly. He shook his head. I wouldn't get too excited about that if I were you, he said. It wouldn't be the first time it's happened. A man makes the big strike, after all, and he gets so excited he forgets himself for a minute and gets careless. And you only have to be careless once out here. That may be it, I said. I got to my feet knowing I'd picked up all there was from this man. Thanks for your cooperation, I said. Any time, he said. He stood and shook hands with me.
I went back out through the chatting prospectors and crossed the echoing cavern that was level one, aiming to rent myself a scooter. I don't like rockets. They're noisy as the dickens, they steer hard and drive erratically, and you can never carry what I would consider a safe emergency excess of fuel. Nothing like the big, steady-G interplanetary liners. On those I feel almost human. The appearance of the scooter I was shown at the rental agency didn't do much to raise my opinion of this mode of transportation. The thing was a good ten years old. The paint scraped and scratched all over its egg-shaped, originally green-colored body. And the windshield, a silly term really for the front window of a craft that spends most of its time out where there isn't any wind, was scratched and pockmarked to the point of translucency by years of exposure to the asteroidal dust. The rental agent was a sharp-nosed, thin-faced type who displayed this refugee from a melting vat without a blush, and still didn't blush when he told me the charges. Twenty credits a day plus fuel. I paid without a murmur. It was the company's money, not mine, and paid an additional ten credits for the rental of a suit to go with it. I worked my way awkwardly into the suit and clambered into the driver's seat of the relic. I attached the suit to the ship in all the necessary places, and the agent closed and spun the door. Most of the black paint had worn off the handles of the controls, and insulation peeked through rips in the plastic siding here and there. I wondered if the thing had any slow leaks, and supposed fatalistically that it had. The agent waved at me, stony-faced. The conveyor belt trundled me outside the dome, and I kicked the weary rockets into life. The scooter had a tendency to roll to the right. If I hadn't kept fighting it back, it would have soon worked up a dandy little spin. I was spending so much time juggling with the controls that I practically missed a couple of my beacon rocks, and that would have been just too bad. If I'd gotten off the course I had carefully outlined for myself, I'd never have found my bearings again, and I would have just floated around amid the scenery until some passer-by took pity and towed me back home. But I managed to avoid getting lost, which surprised me, and after four nerve-wracking hours I finally spotted the yellow-painted X of a registered claim on a half-mile-thick chunk of rock dead ahead. As I got closer, I spied a scooter parked near the X, and beside it an inflated portable dome. The scooter was somewhat larger than mine, but no newer and probably even less safe. The dome was vari-colored from repeated patching. This would be the claim, and this is where I would find Carpin, sitting on his property while waiting for the sale to go through. Prospectors like Carpin are freelance men, working for no particular company. They register their claims in their own names and then sell the rights to whichever company shows up first with the most attractive offer. There's a lot of paperwork to such a sale, and it's all handled by the company. While waiting, the smart prospector sits on his claim and makes sure nobody chips off a part of it for himself, a stunt that still happens now and again. It doesn't take too much concentrated explosive to make two rocks out of one rock and a man's claim is only the rock with his X on it. I set the scooter down next to the other one and flicked the toggle for the air pumps, then put on the fishbowl and went about unattaching the suit from the ship. When the red light flashed on and off, I spun the door, opened it, and stepped out onto the rock, moving very cautiously. It isn't that I don't believe the magnets in the boot soles will work. It's just that I know for a fact that they won't work if I happen to raise both feet at the same time. 
I clumped across the crude X to Carpin's dome. The dome had no viewports at all, so I wasn't sure Carpin was aware of my presence. I wrapped my metal glove on the metal outer door of the lock, and then I was sure. But it took him long enough to open up. I had just about decided he'd joined his partner in the long sleep when the door cracked open an inch. I pushed it open and stepped into the lock, ducking my head. The door was only five feet high, and just as wide as the lock itself, three feet. The other dimensions of the lock were height, six feet six, width, one foot. Not exactly room to dance in. When the red light high on the left-hand wall clicked off, I rapped on the inner door. It promptly opened. I stepped through and removed the fishbowl. Carpin stood in the middle of the room, a small revolver in his hand. Shut the door, he said. I obeyed, moving slowly. I didn't want that gun to go off by mistake. Who are you? Carpin demanded. The M&R man had been right. Ab Carpin was a dead ringer for all those other prospectors I'd seen back at Atronic City. Short and skinny and grizzled and ageless. He could have been forty and he could have been ninety, but he was probably somewhere the other side of fifty. His hair was black and limp and thinning, ruffled in little wisps across his wrinkled pate. His forehead and cheeks were lined like a plowed field, and were much the same color. His eyes were wide apart and small so deep-set beneath shaggy brows that they seemed black. His mouth was thin, almost lipless. The hand holding the revolver was nothing but bones and blue veins covered with taut skin. He was wearing a dirty undershirt and an old pair of trousers that had been cut off raggedly just above his knobby knees. Faded slippers were on his feet. He had good reason for dressing that way. The temperature inside the dome must have been nearly ninety degrees. The dome wasn't reflecting away the sun's heat as well as it had when it was young. I looked at Carpin, and despite the revolver and the tense expression on his face, he was the least dangerous-looking man I'd ever run across. All at once the idea that this antisocial old geezer had the drive or the imagination to murder his partner seemed ridiculous. Apparently I spent too much time looking him over, because he said again, "'Who are you?' and this time he motioned impatiently with the revolver. Stanton, I told him. Ged Stanton, Tangier's Mutual Insurance. I have identification, but it's in my pants pocket, down inside my suit. Get it, he said, and move slow. Right you are. I moved slow, as per directions, and peeled out of the suit, then reached into my trouser pocket and took out my ID clip. I flipped it open and showed him the card bearing my signature and picture and right thumbprint and the name of the company I represented, and he nodded satisfied and tossed the revolver over onto his bed. I got to be careful, he said. I got a big claim here. I know that, I told him. Congratulations for it. Thanks, he said, but he still looked peevish. You're here about Jafe's insurance, right? That I am. Don't want to pay up, I suppose. That doesn't surprise me. Blunt old men irritate me. Well, I said, we do have to investigate. Sure, he said. You want some coffee? Thank you. You can sit in that chair there. That was Jafe's. I settled gingerly in the cloth and plastic fold-away chair he'd pointed at, and he went over to the kitchen area of the dome to start coffee. I took the opportunity to look the dome over. 
It was the first portable dome I'd ever been inside. It was all one room, roughly circular, with a diameter of about fifteen feet. The sides went straight up for the first seven feet, then curved gradually inward to form the roof. At the center of the dome the ceiling was about twelve feet high. The floor of the room was simply the asteroidal rock surface, not completely level and smooth. There were two chairs and a table to the right of the entry lock, two fold-away cots around the wall beyond them, the kitchen area next, and a cluttered storage area around on the other side. There was a heater standing alone in the center of the room, but it certainly wasn't needed now. Sweat was already trickling down the back of my neck and down my forehead into my eyebrows. I peeled off my shirt and used it to wipe sweat from my face. Warm in here, I said. You get used to it, he muttered, which I found hard to believe. He brought over the coffee and I tasted it. It was rotten, as bitter as this old hermit's soul. But I said, good coffee, thanks a lot. I like it strong, he said. I looked around at the room again. All the comforts of home, eh? Pretty ingenious arrangement. Sure, he said sourly. How about getting to the point, mister? There's only one way to handle a blunt old man. Be blunt right back. I'll tell you how it is, I said. The company isn't accusing you of anything, but it has to be sure everything's on the up and up before it pays out any ten thousand credits and your partner just happening to fill out that cash return form just before he died. Well, you've got to admit it's a funny kind of coincidence. How so? He slurped coffee and glowered at me over the cup. We made this strike here, he said. We knew it was the big one. Jafe had that insurance policy of his in case he never did make the big strike. As soon as we knew this was the big one, he said, I guess I don't need that retirement now, and sat right down and wrote out the cash return. Then we opened a bottle of liquor and celebrated, and he got himself killed. The way Carpin said it, it sounded smooth and natural. Too smooth and natural. How did this accident happen, anyway? I asked him. I'm not one hundred percent sure of that myself, he said. I was pretty well drunk myself by that time. But he put on his suit and said he was going out to paint the X. He was falling all over himself, and I tried to tell him it could wait till we'd had some sleep, but he wouldn't pay any attention to me. So he went out, I said. He nodded. He went out first. After a couple minutes I got lonesome in here, so I suited up and went out after him. It happened just as I was going out the lock, and I just barely got a glimpse of what happened. He attacked the coffee again, noisily, and I prompted him, saying, What did happen, Mr. Carpin? Well, he was capering around out there, waving the paint tube and such. There's a lot of sharp rocks sticking out around here. Just as I got outside, he lost his balance and kicked out and scraped right into some of that rock and punctured his suit. I thought his body was lost, I said. He nodded. It was. The last thing in life Chief ever did was try to shove himself away from those rocks. That and the force of air coming out of that puncture for the first second or two was enough to throw him up off the surface. It threw him up too high, and he never got back down. My doubt must have showed in my face, because he added, Mister, there isn't enough gravity on this place to shoot craps with. He was right. As we talked, I kept finding myself holding unnecessarily tight to the arms of the chair. 
I kept having the feeling I was going to float out of the chair and hover around up at the top of the dome if I were to let go. It was silly, of course. There was some gravity on that planetoid, after all. But I just don't seem to get used to low G. Nevertheless, I still had some more questions. Didn't you try to get his body back? Couldn't you have reached him? I tried to, mister, he said. Old Jafe McCann was my partner for fifteen years, but I was drunk, and that's a fact. And I was afraid to go jumping up in the air for fear I'd go floating away, too. Frankly, I said, I'm no expert on low-gravity asteroids, but wouldn't McCann's body just go into orbit around this rock? I mean, it wouldn't simply go floating off into space, would it? It sure would, he said. There's a lot of other rocks out here, too, mister, and a lot of them are bigger than this one and have a lot more gravity pull. I don't suppose there's a navigator in the business who could have computed Jafe's course in advance. He floated up, and then he floated back over the dome here and seemed to hover for a couple of minutes, and then he just floated out and away. His isn't the only body circling the sun with all these rocks, you know. I chewed a lip and thought it all over. I didn't know enough about asteroid gravity or the conditions out here to be able to say for sure whether Carpenter's story was true or not. Up to this point, I couldn't attack the problem on a fact basis. I had to depend on feelings now. The hunches and instincts of eight years in this job, hearing some people tell lies and other people tell the truth. And my instinct said, Ab Carpen was lying in his teeth. That dramatic little touch about McCann's body hovering over the dome before disappearing into the void, that sounded more like the embellishment of fiction than the circumstance of truth. And the string of coincidences were just too much. McCann just coincidentally happened to die right after he and his partner made their big strike. He happens to write out the cash return form just before dying. And his body just happens to float away so nobody can look at it and check Carpen's story. But no matter what my instinct said, the story was smooth. It was smooth as glass, and there was no place for me to get a grip on it. What now? There wasn't any hole in Carpen's story, at least none that I could see. I had to break his story somehow, and in order to do that I had to do some nosing around on this planetoid. I couldn't know in advance what I was looking for. I could only look. I'd know it when I found it. It would be something that conflicted with Carpen's story. And for that I had to be sure the story was complete. You said McCann had gone out to paint the X, I said. Did he paint it? Carpin shook his head. He never got the chance. He spent all his time dancing up till he went and killed himself. So you painted it yourself. He nodded. And then you went on into a Tronic City and registered your claim. Is that the story? No. Chemisant City was closer than a Tronic City right then. So I went there. Just after Jafe's death and everything, I... I didn't feel like being alone any more than I had to. You said Chemisant City was closer to you then, I said. Isn't it now? Things move around a lot out here, mister, he said. Right now Chemisant City's almost twice as far from here as Atronic City. In about three days it'll start swinging in closer again. Things keep shifting around out here. So I've noticed, I said. When you took off to go to Chemisant City, you didn't make a try for your partner's body then? He shook his head. 
He was long out of sight by then, he said. That was ten, eleven hours later when I took off. Why's that? All you had to do was paint the X and take off. Mister, I told you I was drunk. I was falling down drunk, and when I saw I couldn't get at Jafe and he was dead anyway, I came back in here and slept it off. Maybe if I'd been sober I would have taken the scooter and gone after him. But I was drunk. I see. And there just weren't any more questions I could think of to ask. Not right now. So I said, I've just had a shaky four-hour ride coming out here. Mind if I stick around a while before going back? Help yourself, he said, in a pretty poor attempt at genial hospitality. You can sleep over if you want. Fine, I said. I, I think I'd like that. You wouldn't happen to play cribbage, would you? he asked with the first real sign of animation I'd seen in him yet. I learn fast, I told him. Okay, he said. I'll teach you. And he produced a filthy deck of cards and taught me. After losing nine straight games of cribbage, I quit and got to my feet. I was at my most casual as I stretched and said, Okay, if I wander around outside for a while? I've never been on an asteroid like this before. I mean, a little one like this. I've just been to the company cities up to now. Go right ahead, he said. I've got some polishing and patching to do anyway. He made his voice sound easy and innocent, but I noticed his eyes were alert and wary, watching me as I struggled back into my suit. I didn't bother to put my shirt back on first, and that was a mistake. The temperature inside an atmosphere suit is a steady sixty-eight degrees. That had never seemed particularly chilly before, but after the heat of that dome it seemed cold as a blizzard inside the suit. I went on out through the airlock and moved as briskly as possible in the cumbersome suit. While the sweat chilled on my back and face and I accepted the glum conviction that one thing I was going to get out of this trip for sure was a nasty head cold. I went over to the X first and stood looking at it. It was just an X, that's all, shakily scrawled in yellow paint, with the initials J.A. scrawled much smaller beside it. I left the X and clumped away. The horizon was practically at arm's length, so it didn't take long for the dome to be out of sight. And then I clumped more slowly, studying the surface of the asteroid. What I was looking for was a grave. I believed that Carpin was lying, that he had murdered his partner. And I didn't believe that Jafe McCann's body had floated off into space. I was convinced that his body was still somewhere on this asteroid. Carpin had been forced to concoct a story about the body being lost because the appearance of the body would prove somehow that it had been murder and not accident. I was convinced of that, and now all I had to do was prove it. But that asteroid was a pretty unlikely place for a grave. That wasn't dirt I was walking on, it was rock, solid metallic rock. You don't dig a grave in solid rock, not with a shovel. You maybe can do it with dynamite, but that won't work too well if your object is to keep anybody from seeing that the hole has been made. Dirt can be patted down. Blown up rock looks like blown up rock, and that's all there is to it. I considered crevices and fissures in the surface, some cranny large enough for Carpin to have stuffed the body into. But I didn't find any of these either as I plodded along, being sure to keep one magneted boot always in contact with the ground. 
Carpin and McCann had set their dome up at just about the only really level spot on that entire planetoid. The rest of it was nothing but jagged rock, and it wasn't easy traveling at all, maneuvering around with magnets on my boots and a bulky atmosphere suit cramping my movements. And then I stopped and looked out at space and cursed myself for a ring-tailed baboon. McCann's body might be anywhere in the solar system, anywhere at all, but there was one place I could be sure it wasn't, and that place was this asteroid. No. Carpin had not blown a grave or stuffed the body into a fissure in the ground. Why not? Because this chunk of rock was valuable. That's why not. Because Carpin was in the process of selling it to one of the major companies, and that company would come along and chop this chunk of rock to pieces, getting the valuable metal out, and McCann's body would turn up in the first week of operations if Carpin were stupid enough to bury it here. Ten hours between McCann's death and Carpin's departure for Chemisant City. He'd admitted that already. And I was willing to bet he'd spent at least part of that time carrying McCann's body to some other asteroid, one he was sure was nothing but worthless rock. If that were true, it meant the mortal remains of Jafe McCann were now somewhere, anywhere, in the asteroid belt. Even if I assumed that the body had been hidden on an asteroid somewhere between here and Chemisant City, which wasn't necessarily so, that wouldn't help at all. The relative positions of planetoids in the belt just kept on shifting. A small chunk of rock that was between here and Chemisant City a few weeks ago, it could be almost anywhere in the belt right now. The body. That was the main item. I more or less counted on finding it somehow. At the moment, I couldn't think of any other angle for attacking Carpin's story. As I clopped morosely back to the dome, I nibbled at Carpin's story in my mind. For instance, why go to Chemisant City? It was closer, he said, but it couldn't have been closer by more than a couple of hours. The way I understood it, Carpin was well known back on Atronic City. It was the normal base of operations for he and his partner, and he didn't know a soul at Chemisant City. Did it make sense for him to go somewhere he wasn't known after his partner's death, even if it was an hour closer? No. It made a lot more sense for a man in that situation to go where he's known, go someplace where he has friends who'll sympathize with him and help him get over the shock of losing a partner of fifteen years' standing, even if going there does mean traveling an hour longer. And there was always the cash return form. That was what I was here about in the first place. It just didn't make sense for McCann to have held up his celebration while he filled out a form that he wouldn't be able to mail until he got back to Atronic City. And yet the company's handwriting experts were convinced that it wasn't a forgery, and I could pretty well take their word for it. Mulling these things over as I tramped back toward the dome, I suddenly heard a distant bell ringing way back in my head. The glimmering of an idea. Not an idea yet, but just the hint of one. I wasn't sure where it led, or even if it led anywhere at all, but I was going to find out. Carpin opened the doors for me. By the time I'd stripped off the suit, he was back to work. He was cleaning the single unit, which was his combination stove and refrigerator and sink and garbage disposal. I looked around the dome again, and I had to admit that a lot of ingenuity had gone into the manufacture and design of this dome and its contents. The dome itself, when deflated, folded down into an oblong box three feet by one foot by one foot. 
The lock itself, of course, folded separately into another box, somewhat smaller than that. As for the gear inside the dome, it was functional and collapsible, and there wasn't a single item there that wasn't needed. There were the two chairs and the two cots and the table, all of them fold away. There was that fantastic combination job Carpin was cleaning right now, and that had dimensions of four feet by three feet by three feet. The clutter of gear over to the left wasn't as much of a clutter as it looked. There was a Geiger counter, an automatic spectrograph, two atmosphere suits, a torsion densimeter, a core-cutting drill, a few small hammers and picks, two spare air tanks, boxes of food concentrate, a paint tube, a doorless Jimmy John, and two small metal boxes about eight inches square. These last were undoubtedly Carpin's and McCann's pouches, where they kept whatever letters, money, address books, or other small bits of possessions they owned. Back of this mound of gear against the wall stood the air reconditioner, humming quietly to itself. In this small enclosed space there was everything a man needed to keep himself alive. Everything except human company. And if you didn't need human company, then you had everything. Just on the other side of that dome there was a million miles of death in a million possible ways. On this side of the dome life was cozy if somewhat spartan and very hot. I knew for sure I was going to get a head cold. My body had adjusted to the sixty-eight degrees inside the suit, finally, and now was very annoyed to find the temperature shooting up to ninety again. Since Carpin didn't seem inclined to talk, and I would rather spend my time thinking than talking anyway, I took a hint from him and did some cleaning. I'd noticed a smeared spot about the nose level on the faceplate of my fishbowl and now was as good a time as any to get rid of it. It had a tendency to make my eyes cross. My shirt was sodden and wrinkled by this time anyway, having first been used to wipe sweat from my face and later been rolled into a ball and left on the chair when I went outside. So I used it for a cleaning rag, buffing like mad the silvered surface of the faceplate. Faceplates are silvered, not so the man inside can look out and no one else can look in, but in order to keep some of the more violent rays of the sun from getting through to the face. I buffed for a while, and then I put the fishbowl on my head and looked through it. The spot was gone, so I went over and reattached it to the rest of the suit, and then settled back in my chair again and lit a cigarette. Carpin spoke up. Wish you wouldn't smoke. Makes it tough on the conditioner. Oh, I said, sorry. So I just sat, thinking morosely about non-forged cash return forms and coincidences and likely spots to hide a body in the asteroid belt. Where would one dispose of a body in the asteroids? I went back through my thinking on that topic, and I found holes big enough to drive Carpin's claim through. This idea of leaving the body on some worthless chunk of rock, for instance. If Carpin had killed his partner, and I was dead sure he had, he'd planned it carefully, and he wouldn't be leaving anything to chance. Now, an asteroid isn't worthless to a prospector until that prospector has landed on it and tested it. Carpin might know that such such an asteroid was nothing but worthless stone, but the guy who stops there and finds McCann's body might not know it. No, Carpin wouldn't leave that to chance. He would get rid of that body, and he would do it in such a way that nobody would ever find it. How? Not by leaving it on a worthless asteroid, and not by just pushing it off into space. 
The distance between asteroids is large, but so's the travel. McCann's body floating around in the blackness might just be found by somebody. And that, so far as I could see, eliminated the possibilities. McCann's body was in the belt. I'd eliminated both the asteroids themselves and the space around the asteroids as hiding places. What was left? The sun, of course. I thought that over for a while, rather surprised at myself for having noticed the possibility. Now, let's say Carpin attaches a small rocket to McCann's body, stuffed into its atmosphere suit. He sets the rocket going, and off goes McCann. Not that he aims it toward the sun. That wouldn't work well at all. Instead of falling into the sun, the body would simply take up a long elliptical orbit around the sun, and would come back to the asteroids every few hundred years. No, he would aim McCann back, in the direction opposite to the direction of rotation of the asteroids. He would, in essence, slow McCann's body down, make it practically stop in relation to the motion of the asteroids, and then it would simply fall into the sun. None of my ideas, it seemed, were happy ones. If McCann's body were even at this moment falling toward the sun, it was just as useful to me as if it were on some other asteroid. But wait a second. Carpin and McCann had worked with the minimum of equipment. I'd already noticed that. They didn't have extras of anything, and they certainly wouldn't have extra rockets. Except for one fast trip to Chemisant City, when he had neither the time nor the excuse to buy a Chato rocket, Carpin had spent all of his time since McCann's death right here on this planetoid. So that killed that idea. While I was hunting around for some other idea, Carpin spoke up again for the first time in maybe twenty minutes. You think I killed him, don't you? he said, not looking around from his cleaning job. I considered my answer. There was no reason at all to be overly polite to this sour old buzzard, but at the same time I am naturally the soft-spoken type. We aren't sure, I said. We just think there are some odd items to be explained. Such as what? he demanded. Such as the timing of McCann's cash return form? I already explained that, he said. I know. You've explained everything. He wrote it out himself, the old man insisted. He put down his cleaning cloth and turned to face me. I suppose your company checked the handwriting already, and Jafe McCann is the one who wrote that form. He was so blasted sure of himself. It would seem that way. I said. What other odd items you worried about? He asked me in a rusty attempt at sarcasm. Well, I said, there's this business of going to Chemisant City. It would have made more sense for you to go to Atronic City, where you were known. Chemisant was closer, he said. He shook a finger at me. That company of yours thinks it can cheat me out of my money, he said. Well, it can't. I know my rights. That money belongs to me. I guess you're doing pretty well without McCann, I said. His angry expression was replaced by one of bewilderment. What do you mean? They told me back at Atronic City, I explained, that McCann was the money expert and you were the metals expert, and that's why McCann handled all your buying on credit and stuff like that. Looks as though you've got a pretty keen eye for money yourself. I know what's mine, he mumbled, and turned away. He went back to scrubbing the stove coils again. I stared at his back. Something had happened just then, and I wasn't sure what. 
He'd just been starting to warm up to a tirade against the dirty insurance company, and all of a sudden he'd folded up and shut up like a clam. And then I saw it. Or at least I saw part of it. I saw how that cash return form fit in, and how it made perfect sense. Now all I needed was proof of murder, preferably a body. I had the rest of it. Then I could pack the old geezer back to Atronic City and get proof for the part I'd already figured out. I'd like that. I'd like getting back to Atronic City and having this all straightened out and then taking the very next liner straight back to Earth. More immediately, I'd like to get out of this heat and back into the cool sixty-eight degrees of— And then it hit me. The whole thing hit me. And I just sat there and stared. They did not carry extras. Carpen and McCann, they did not carry one item of equipment more than they needed. I sat there and looked at the place where the dead body was hidden, and I said, Well, I'll be a son of a gun. He turned and looked at me, and then he followed the direction of my gaze. He saw what I was staring at, and he made a jump across the room at the revolver lying on the cot. That was what saved me. He moved too fast, jerked his muscles too hard, and went sailing up and over the cot and ricocheted off the dome wall. And that gave me plenty of time to get up from the chair, moving more cautiously than he had, and get my hands on the revolver before he could get himself squared away again. I straightened with the gun in my hand and looked into the face, white with frustration and rage. Okay, Mr. McCann, I said. It's all over. He knew I had him, but he tried not to show it. What are you talking about? McCann's dead. Sure he is, I said. Jafe McCann was the money-minded part of the team. He was the one who signed for all the loans and all the equipment bought on credit. With this big strike in, Jafe McCann was the one who'd have to pay all that money. You're babbling, he snapped, but the words were hollow. You weren't satisfied with half a loaf, I said. You should have been. Half a loaf is better than none. But you wanted every penny you could get your hands on, and you wanted to pay out just as little money as you possibly could. So when you killed Ab Carpin, you saw a way to kill your debts as well. You'd become Ab Carpin, and it would be Jafe McCann who was dead, and the debts dead with him. That's a lie, he said, his voice getting shrill. I'm Ab Carpin, and I've got papers to prove it. Sure, papers you stole from a dead man. And you might have gotten away with it, too, but you just couldn't leave well enough alone, could you? Not satisfied with having the whole claim to yourself, you switched identities with your victim to avoid your debts. And not satisfied with that, you filled out a cash return form and tried to collect your money as your own heir. That's why you had to go to Chemison City, where nobody would recognize Ab Carpin or Jafe McCann, rather than to Atronic City, where you were well known. You don't want to make too many wild accusations, he shouted, his voice shaking. You don't want to go around accusing people of things you can't prove. I can prove it, I told him. I can prove everything I've said. As to who you are, there's no problem. All I have to do is bring you back to Atronic City. There'll be plenty of people there to identify you. And as to proving you murdered Ab Carpin, I think his body will be proof enough, don't you? McCann watched me as I backed slowly around the room to the mound of gear. The partners had no extra equipment, no extra equipment at all. 
I looked down at the two atmosphere suits lying side by side on the metallic rock floor. Two atmosphere suits. The dead man was supposed to be in one of those, floating out in space somewhere. He was in the suit right enough. I was sure of that. But he wasn't floating anywhere. A spacesuit is a perfect place to hide a body for as long as it has to be hid. The silvered faceplate keeps you from seeing inside, and the suit is, naturally, a sealed atmosphere. A body can rot away to ashes inside a spacesuit, and you'll never notice a thing on the outside. I'd had the right idea, after all. McCann had planned to get rid of Carpin's body by attaching a rocket to it, slowing it down, and letting it fall into the sun. But he hadn't had the opportunity yet to go buy a rocket. He couldn't go to Atronic City, where he could have bought the rocket on credit, and he couldn't go to Chemisant City until the claim sale went through and he had some money to spend. And in the meantime, Carpin's body was perfectly safe, sealed away inside his atmosphere suit. And it would have been safe, too, if McCann hadn't been just a little bit too greedy. He could kill his partner and get away with it. Policemen on the belt are even farther apart than the asteroids. He could swindle his creditors and get away with it. They had no way of checking up and no reason to suspect a switch in identities. But when he tried to get his own money back from Tangier's mutual insurance, that's when he made his mistake. I studied the two atmosphere suits, at the same time managing to keep a wary eye on Jafe McCann, standing rigid and silent across the room. Which one of those suits contained the body of Ab Carpin? The one with the new patch on the chest, of course. As I'd guessed, McCann had shot him, and that's why he had the problem of disposing of the body in the first place. I prodded that suit with my toe. He's in there, isn't he? You're crazy. Think I should open it up and check? It's been almost a month. You know, I imagine he's pretty ripe by now. I reached down to the neck fastenings on the fishbowl, and McCann finally moved. His arms jerked up, and he cried, don't. He's in there. He's in there. For God's sake, don't open it up. I relaxed. Mission accomplished. Crawl into your suit, little man, I said. We've got ourselves a trip to make. The three of us. Henderson, as usual, was jovial but stern. You did a fine job up there, Ged, he said with false familiarity. Really brilliant work. Thank you very much, I said. I was holding the last piece of news for a minute or two, relishing it. But you brought McCann in over a week ago. I don't see why you had to stay up at Atronic City at all after that, much less ten days. I sat back in the chair and negligently crossed my legs. I just thought I'd take a little vacation, I said carelessly, and lit a cigarette. I flicked ashes in the general direction of the ashtray on Henderson's desk. Some of them made it. A vacation, he echoed, eyes widening. Henderson was a company man, a real company man. A vacation for him was purgatory. It was separation from a loved one. I don't believe you have a vacation coming, he said frostily, for at least six months. That's what you think, Henny, I said. All he could do at that was blink. I went on, enjoying myself hugely. I don't like this company, I said, and I don't like this job, and I don't like you, and from now on I've decided it's going to be vacation all the time. Ged, he said, his voice faint, 
What's the matter with you? Don't you feel well? I feel well, I told him. I feel fine. Now, I'll tell you why I spent an extra ten days at Atronic City. McCann made and registered the big strike, right? Henderson nodded blankly, apparently not trusting himself to speak. Wrong, I said cheerfully. McCann went to Chemisant City and filled out all the forms required for registering a claim. But every place he was supposed to sign his name, he wrote Ab Carpin instead. Jafe McCann never did make a legal registration of his claim. Henderson just looked fish-eyed. So, I went on, as soon as I turned McCann over to the law at Atronic City, I went and registered that claim myself. And then I waited around for ten days until the company finished the paperwork involved in buying that claim from me. And then I came straight back here, just to say goodbye to you. Wasn't that nice? He didn't move. Goodbye, I said. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Misa. Hi, I'm Will. And we're going to talk about The Risk Profession by Donald E. Westlake. This is first published in an issue of a magazine, which I haven't got up handy, <laughs> even though I just finished processing it. Um, who here had read this before besides me? Nope. Nope. I guess not, you, Will. You've been good in expanding my my horizons, especially with authors like Westlake on this podcast. Um... Anybody see the ending coming? No. <laughs> yeah, I did. Oh, well, such a detective. <laughs> this is from Amazing March Which 1961. Which did you see coming, Will? The first ending or the second ending or mm -hmm. both? Yeah, both. there's two endings. Yeah, it's like, which ending are you talking about? Yeah, I think I saw both coming, and I think it's just because I'm like uh, like a cynical person. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm like, what angle do you want to have? It's not like I actually do a lot of like cynical things in my own life that like lead to my enrichment. But I think when you're like um, like when you're a lawyer, I feel like there's like an incentive to be sort of part of a perverse culture that kind of considers things in these ways. Mm. So it was your lawyer brain. Yeah. Did did that ruin your enjoyment figuring it out? I was out? just going to ask you that. Does that, it hurt your there was a spoiler. Oh, not at all. Like I enjoyed figuring it out. Like uh You feel smart. Yeah, yeah, that was really fun. I uh I don't know. I feel like I don't like when I'm reading mysteries, I don't always like know like how they're going to shake out, you mm -hmm. know? And so it was exciting to like kind of uh like feel a little bit ahead of the curve mm -hmm. on this one. Um, I also think he like, uh, I also think he kind of telegraphed both of the, both of the twists, if you will. I'll tell you how well he telegraphed it. I've read this several times. I forgot the ending every time. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> the identity of the dead person. I, I got pretty early in the story when, well, at least at the point where he's, where, where, uh, where he starts talking about the financial things he's arranged, and I'm thinking, that sounds more like the other guy. Mm, what if? Mm. But yeah, but that he was going to uh, quit his job? Not so a much. Double twist I ending. Think, I don't think that's foregrounded well enough in this, in our character. To, <sighs> it's subtle. It's subtle. He yeah, right at the beginning. I, I I was I was thinking about how well the how you know Westlake's amazing, and this yeah. is not his most amazing story, but. It's oh, actually it's in amazing, but <laughs> he's got he's got more stories in amazing as well. But well, my, so this was in amazing science fiction. Amazing, amazing, amazing science fiction. Yeah, 
Um, March okay, 1961. Okay, mm-hmm. that's helpful. So uh, basically, uh, he does he does telegraph it a little bit the the double twist ending, um, in that he doesn't like his boss, but he puts mm-hmm. up or with his him. Job. Yeah, he doesn't. Uh, he certainly doesn't like going to anywhere off planet. Yes. Right. Yeah. He wants he, to stay in fire and theft. The way he says. Right in New yeah. York, he's not a fan of of uh, space missions. Um, which is, I think it's sort of, this is a very meta story. I kept thinking about that. How Westlake. Oh, Westlake's career. Yeah. yeah, Westlake's career. And this is a crime story, right? It's, yeah. a, it's actually a murder mystery as well. It's a locked room mystery or a locked asteroid mystery. It's a whole bunch of things. And then instead of making it a series, right? Uh, and, and, an investigator and that's what I was hope, hoping for at least the door opening till the ending like wow you could have this guy go across the solar system doing this all sorts of thing oh nope wait he got the lucky strike and he's retired no more of these stories well yeah. it's not even that's his lucky mad, strike right because you know uh like uh, at the second alan quartermain novel like he dies and then there's like 20 alan quartermain <laughs> novels after that i mean if, if you wanted to do a series with this character sure you could. sure you yeah. could beg also, him we don't know he like really it like he could easily lose all the money too right, that's, right. Like, right. that's how people yeah. in this universe are right right it's also it's also possible it was a triple okay. twist ending if you if you didn't pay enough close attention uh, attention it could have been um that uh the miner replaced our insurance investigator and came back to quit the job and killed him. So that this is all a fake out, but I don't think there's a lot well, of good evidence for that. How he just jumped from, um, uh, okay, we're gonna go and and take you in right to the to the to the insurance office. Mm. Like we didn't see there. There would have been a whole. They had to do this whole thing with a gun and get him mm-hmm. into the getting into in the suits the and ro- suit and the rocket. Not like falling that. asleep. That is a killer. He, you yeah. know. Yeah. So yeah, there could have been. There could have been one thing that one thing I didn't buy because we don't see it and we don't understand it is why does the guy murder his partner in the first place? They they had a good because they found they found out that it was a lucky strike. I think I think he had it planned all along, Paul. Because I agree with Misa. He 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 had contingency plans for everything. Yeah. He was waiting. Fifteen years they were partners when they do the last three months usually. That's a long, deep cut. So I told it, that's how years. I felt. That's how I felt. He was planning this forever. Mm-hmm. That was I agree with long, Lisa. long game. I, yeah, well, I mean, that's why he signed for the debt. Only one of yeah. them signed for the debts. That's mm-hmm. really atypical, right? Yeah, that's true. That he didn't he didn't have the formal partnership. He just had yeah. this. Uh, and yeah, and, and the guy, the clerk says yeah, they were they're cleverer than they knew. No, yeah, I no, he knew what he was doing. Well, really, uh, what do you guys really think about the world like building here? Because um, it, show, it shows up. It's just, it, this is so much, like, this could have been published in uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, uh, just, you know, with this weird space setting. It could have been published in Ellery Queen, right? It could have been, because that's what it is. It is a murder mystery, locked room mystery, locked asteroid mystery. Um, it doesn't, uh, the the technological aspects are a sort of backseat to that that part of the story but i think there's a, a i mean other than the fact they don't seem to have the internet right um they're they don't have uh i don't know retina scans and stuff like that it's it's uh 
it feels like it's not very science fiction-y, uh, even though it's set in space. But I, I noticed, the, like, all the names. Like, they've got real last names like McCann and Carpin, but the guy's name is Ab. The other guy's name is Jafe. And then our investigator is Jed with a G. Like, th- that's sort of futuristic, right? Everybody's name changed to... S- <laughs> futuristic like names just a little bit just a little bit yeah just, yeah just 20 minutes into the future i mean there's no year given for this no we don't know where, and it doesn't really matter that much i mean i mean we get a sense okay earth is spread to the point where we have belter belters basically yeah 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 this is an expanse story i agree yeah mm-hmm. colonizing the asteroids and making strikes and do, is earth going out further than that no clue, and it doesn't matter. But we do we do know that he apparently goes to space enough that there's probably space stations around Earth. There's definitely there's definitely a colony on Luna. Yeah, what he's North been there. Is, I mean, I mean, as you're saying with the world, there's implied there's a large human presence in space that that the insurance company would feel comfortable enough sending somebody to to uh, to check up on claims. And like, yeah, it was, yeah. oh, go for it. I was oh. just go for it. Oh, but but it's all very um, earthbound. Like that, this whole thing could have happened on Earth mm. in in some sort of gold rush situation. Mm-hmm. It oh, is wow. basically a gold rush story, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the thing about this story, which is why it reminds me of the Expanse. Is that you know the uh, like the social questions and like contradictions that like exist in our current form of society are just like taken out uh, into outer space, mm-hmm. right? right? It's, it, it's yeah. not. Um, this isn't like uh, it reminds me of like Alfred Bester mm. or um, like uh, Lee Brackett when she's yeah. in a more like space noir mood. It's just like this is this is like the seedy underbelly of like capitalism, but we right. put it in space. Yeah. Um, and like, who are the like? Why are people like driven to like live in zero g their whole life and like maybe try to make some money out here? Mm. Like, like is mass unemployment such a problem on Earth that like we're like trying to like live in the asteroids? Like what's well, well, they, what's they go, driving this? Well, go 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 going back to the world living, and they say they th- I mean the the guy the guy at the desk on the on Electronic City talks about brilliant people going out to make their money. So why can't they make money on Earth? Is it is it opportunity? Is it desperation? Is it both? I mean, why are people with university degrees risking their lives to try to find that one? great chance that one lucky strike i can explain it all go ahead jesse (laughs) and and there's the uh well just just to like make sure we like fully understand the point like as in like the expanse like we get some like a little bit of realism about what happens to these people when they live in zero g for a long time like it says when they come back to earth they shrivel up yeah i i I took that metaphorically and physically it's like after living out there all this time earth is just not for them so I, I took it as a sense of physiological and psychological reasons why a belter returning to Earth is not going to do well. And so this insurance policy, quote unquote, pays off for the company. As with as with uh, the regular Klondike gold rush, right? It wasn't uh, mostly Australians <laughs> coming in. It wasn't mostly Europeans. And it wasn't even mostly Canadians. It was mostly Americans. Um, Westlake is American. He is obsessed with uh, thinking about the country in which he lives. He thinks differently. He's also a writer. Um, but I want to point out like a theme <laughs> that we didn't see it in The Spy in the Elevator, I don't think, exactly, um, except we kind of did. 
And basically, it's about government, right? So here, the, it's a very hands-off government. The only uh, sort of hint we get that this is about government is when he's learning about why this contract, the double RP contract, even exists, or deal. And it's because the company thinks of uninsurables as people they can't get can't find a way to get the money out of, right? The, mm-hmm. the rapacious... It's very, it's very rapacious capitalism. The rapacious, capitalistic evil that is uh, insurance companies is trying to get as much money out, and they're not going to let people cheat them, right? Now, I, I think it's interesting that the, the insurance company also says this is definitely his signature when they would have uh, maybe... a. Uh, logical recourse not to say that, right? Well, we, we can't rule out that it was fake, right? Because ha- handwriting analysis is not, <laughs> it's not really as, uh, robust as everybody wants to believe it is, right? Um, that, that's like a, that's a mystery fiction trope. Right? It is. Yeah, that and that's, it, it's important that that 100% be, uh, a part of our toolkit for unlocking this locked room mystery right it has to be that he actually did sign it and so that's why the insurance company agrees 100 percent that it was him and him at the right age right he didn't do it uh oh, this is future jesse like maybe they've got that technology now <laughs> yeah well they don't say that but more importantly um uh, yeah i think that that part is Im- important in that the the company is sure that he signed it Right mm-hmm. now, the question is, why would he do that? Um, well, we find out eventually. But the whole purpose that this this uh, retirement plan, the double RP, uh, even exists, and the fact that there was this thing called a cash return form, which he'd never heard of, right? But his boss has to explain. Well, there's a law, <laughs> and then yeah, he sounds not very happy about the law. He's no, oh, no, he's not happy at all. And then he says. Uh, our investigator says, oh, well, that explains it. They wouldn't give money back if they didn't have to, right? So we've got that. And then we've got... there a line about uh, it got through and the companies didn't stop it? Right. The corruption somehow didn't work that day, right? So we've got got this... uh, I found it. Okay, go for it. Oh, I... Oh, I said that explained it. A law that had snuck through the World Finance Code Commission while the insurance lobby wasn't looking. Right. That is de- that is definitely ultra capitalism at its at in a, in a nutshell. Right. So we've got that, and we've got the the main investigator here is not a detective for the police agency. He's not a you know private detective working for the family. He's working for the he's an insurance investigator. So we've got that, and then we've got. A bunch of other stories by Westlake. In fact, it's sort of a hidden theme, you know, like, uh, I really like Evan's podcasts on, um, Philip K. Dick, because he brings out stuff I'd never thought about, like, the fact that Philip K. Dick is obsessed with the frontier. Or, uh, when he talks about, um, Howard, how he talks about, um, forgetting is a theme that's throughout Lovecraft's work, and the sea. Uh, it's like, well, I guess there's a sea, but no, it's always like these sailors, nautical Negroes coming from overseas, immigrants from across the ocean, right? It's sort of a, an obsession. So Westlake has one too, and it's with insurance. 
So I recently did a podcast with uh, Scott about a novel called Somebody Owes Me Money. It's a hilarious uh, murder mystery <laughs> with a, it's a, what they call the, a nephew novel. It's basically the main character knows somebody who's in the mob. He's not in the mob himself, but he gets sort of tangled up in a murder and people suspect that he's the murderer and he has to get himself out of it. That's basically the plot. Um, but there's this weird phenomenon inside the story where we get what we think is his characterization, um, with his dad, who is always at home and he's a doddering sort of foolish character who's always, uh, working on getting the best insurance policy. And he's like, got his, his blue pen and he's tapping it on his forehead. And when he comes home and says, Hey, dad, what's for dinner? He notices all these like blue, lines on his dad's forehead and he says i just can't figure this out it seems it seems like if i go with this plan it'll be better than if i go with that plan and it's it's in a ton of westlake and i i was like why is this in here like was his dad actually an insurance i, I don't know the answer i was thinking of calling paul westlake up and asking <laughs> what's the deal with your dad in insurance but uh even in his very first published story as a professional insurance comes up and it's about u.s government and that finally sort of twigged to me i've heard this line basically government is insurance and if you look at what you know i like about living in british columbia is it basically it sort of helps me not worry about stuff like whether i'm gonna live <laughs> whether i can afford to do x y or z right so uh, whether I'm going to get invaded, whether like all the things that we think of is what taxes are. Those are basically insurance payments. Now, if you've got a really evil, rapacious insurance company, you pay a lot um, and then you don't get anything from it because they're not giving you your benefits. But in the province that I live in, uh, the health care is insured by the government. The insurance for your car is insured by your government. Uh, there's, uh, an army to prevent me from being invaded from my neighbors, I guess. Um, they don't show up much because we're in tight alliance with our neighbors. And then... Uh, well, you also, uh, put down the natives, like, a century and a half ago, right? Like, that's, like... Well, yeah, that's the, what the army would be well, That's what the RCMP was for. The army didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, the, the RCMP like is still record. doing that, yes. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, so, I mean, that that's actually who's being put down. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but the, the kind of, the idea of thinking of government as insurance really makes sense because you, in this case, you're, he's actually making his social security payments, right? <laughs> and he wants to cash in on his social security payments. And he does, but he also, uh, because it's a private insurer, we have this sort of extra level of stupidity, which is, well, we have to defend this, right? So if you've got, like right now, a coronavirus uh, thing going all around the world, right? You don't really want everybody to uh, starve to death because that makes the whole thing unstable. So what you do is you send money to the people who are supposed to stay home, especially if they can't work because of the industry they're in, et cetera, et cetera. That, that payment is insurance, right? It may not be something specifically planned for, but it's a way to ensure that the system remains stable. 
And so if you think of like the kind of universe that this story is set in, it's an evil universe, right? We barely see anything of Earth. There's fire and theft in New York, and then there's uh, something that went on on Luna. And this guy's job is to go around and make sure the company doesn't have to pay out. This is like uh, in Canada, we get an announcement. Anybody who cheats on their CERB, their uh, coronavirus benefit or whatever, um, they're going to go to jail. They're going to get uh, uh, right, and we're going to we're going to investigate you. Well, if you make it a sort of a UBI, you can't cheat on it, right? So what's the point of all that? It's basically to have the company tell you its boss as opposed to you telling the company its boss. This is people being afraid of their government versus government being afraid of its people. And that is, I think, a really interesting insight into this, what is a really terrible universe. The other question, though, is, like, when you're you're talking about, like, the the coronavirus payments is, like, uh, who is the government an insurance policy for? Right. Like, um, uh, because, you know, the reason uh, that, for example, in Ohio... uh, They've set up a hotline where employers can, like, uh, call in people who have refused to return to work right. uh, when they're uh, receiving uh, uh, unemployment insurance. Right. It's, uh, your employee, like, it's it's insurance for the employer's death, social Yes, abuse. yes. Uh, yep. And so if you've got if you've got a country like the States where uh, the people who primarily benefit from the coronavirus are the people who own the stocks, right, in those companies... Then you've got one one form of uh, beneficiary, and if you've got one that's like Canada, where it's slightly less corrupt, where yeah, everybody in Canada gets a little bit of money uh, if they get uh, no work, but also uh, uh, this we charity, fake charity, um, gets a uh, billion dollars just to hand out to its friends, and its friends are all the prime minister's family members, right? <laughs> Getting speaking fees. Um, uh, oh yes, definitely. And one of the ministers like gets a $14,000 vacation. Oh, I forgot to write a check for that. Darn it. Oh, I better do that right now. You know, like this is, it's all a scam, right? So it depends on, it's basically, you think about who the stockholders are in the corporation. And if the stockholders are not the general public, then the corporation is working for, uh, the, not the stockholders, but some subset of them, right? Those in charge, those on the board, for example. Um, and this, I'm sure, is true with more, most corporations. They're doing it not for the general stockholders, although they have to worry about them in in general uh, because they will be voted in or out, but they're working for their own benefit within this corporation. And that's kind of the cynicism of this. And yet, that's not really the focus of the story, Right. This feels like a very much like a Agatha Christie style locked room mystery, mm-hmm. but he's got that yeah. all in the background, right? This this doesn't work unless you've got this rapacious insurance capitalism, right, right? Because because as you, as you said, this is an insurance company, not the government that's doing the investigation, right? If it was the government, uh, there wouldn't this couldn't happen, uh, or uh, another way to look at is is like the last book right anarchaos i was just thinking about that right which is the absence of insurance companies (laughs) (laughs) or or the extreme presence of i mean all the people who work inside those guarded buildings 
are are within the system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as you leave them, uh, you're subject to uh, immediate death. But it seems like uh, Earth has a much more generous system, except for the fact that they give you as an export uh, a possibility of moving overseas and taking your crime with you, right? In the case of Anarchaos, that is. Overseas being another planet. So Westlake is totally well, experimenting they're, 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 with government yeah. ideas, is, is yeah. what my point is. And that's why this is feels a little more interesting than just a regular locked room mystery. He's, say, he's saying more very subtly about the world, about capitalism, about corporations, about the ethics of this sort of investigation, the ethics of setting up your partner for 15 years and then killing them once the big strike comes in and trying to get all. And then that, that's, that, that's the irony of the story that if he wasn't so greedy as to fill in that cash return form, he would have gotten away with it. Yeah. I love that Scooby-Doo ending. <laughs> you might've gotten away with it too. If you hadn't have been so greedy. I mean, I mean, if he doesn't do that, because given the, the lack of law in the belt, so he, he goes to that other station. I forgot the name of it. He collects the money, goes home, and lives a great, a great life. He skipped out on the debts because because that person is dead supposedly, and I mean he could just buy a ticket back to Earth and just go about his life happily. And corporation would never know unless I mean there's no internet here for the for, apparently for the corporation to see a year later like oh this this guy is actually alive and in France. Or something. Mm-hmm. So they I mean, all actually it, look exactly the same too. And they all yes, that's that's a detail part. They all look exactly the same. It's like if he had not tried to cheat the corporate the insurance company, he would have gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. Easy peasy. It's uh, the names of those cities. Uh, they're they're not stations. They're cities. Atronics City. Atronic Atronic Chemisant and, and Ludlum. I sure, yeah, I wasn't sure what. A, I mean, I kept hearing like electronics, atronics. Yeah, it sounds like electronics, right? I had to look at the text afterwards, like though it's atronics, right? And but notice that the the suffixes, right? Chemisant and atronics, they sound like things that we would understand, right? It sounds like things that we would get, but atronics is not a thing, as far as I know. And chemisant. I took that they were. I took they were company towns. Like I think that uh, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I think yeah, if you have, think uh, about how it worked in in the last the last one, right? Um, well, in our chaos, our chaos we have, each yeah, of these companies we have yeah, like company towns that like Vico stands for uh, like there's a town called Vico, Kentucky, right? And it's Virginia International Coal Company, Seco, Kentucky, Southeast Coal Company. Like and you know, that's just how places get there. There's names. one between uh, my house and my mom's house. There's one of these company towns. It's a ghost town. Uh, it's called Ioco, <laughs> I-O-C-O, and it yeah. sounds a lot like Pomo, Port Moody, and Poco, Port Coquitlam, but actually it's Imperial Oil Company. Uh, oh, oil shipment. Oh, I, probably from the, from Alberta out, and that was yeah, the terminal? It's, it's, it's the, sense. it's the terminal and the cracking station, and it is a ghost town now, but they still own the land, and the town's still there. So, that these company towns where you know you set up and you are oh there's one uh north northern canada on northern british columbia um it's a company town it's alcan 
<laughs> aluminum corporation, right? Yeah. Aluminum processing. Um, what you need is a lot of big, uh, hydroelectricity to, pr- to crack the, uh, aluminum out of the, this dirt that's shipped all the way from, uh, from, I think it's like Trinidad <laughs> through really? the, through the Panama Canal up the coast of North America to this little inlet city in, in, uh, British Columbia where the electric hydroelectricity is cheap. Oh, okay. So, 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 so it's a matter of that's where the power is. So they bring that's the where the power is because you need cheap electricity and you need lots of it. Okay, that makes that makes sense. They so say like, where are they getting the aluminum? Like, okay, that's being shipped to them. That's right. They have the power, and that's uh, and and when you're in a town like that, the company is the government, right? Sure, there's a there's a mayor <laughs> and there's counselors, but if the company goes out of business. You know, if they decide to move, if they decide to, you know, do anything, um, the company, well, the, the town's that's gone. A, that's that's a, that's the story of a lot of cities and towns in Pennsylvania when it, the coal mines dried up. All those flyover states are full of towns like that, right? Like, yeah, I mean, the the iron range here in Minnesota has had lots of problems with the reduction of uh, mining, and now. There's efforts to try to bring mining back, and there's a lot of tension between people want the mining back to quote unquote revitalize the area, and like people who want that area for its recreational possibilities. Because if you if you if you return to mining there, you're going to destroy the BWCA as a as a destination for tourists. So it's like there's a, there's a big push and pull in northern Minnesota over well, who should this belong to? So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a section of the book with all this in mind. I think you'll see that Westlake is incredibly subtle. I I, I just really love that about him. It, he's you can it's very even hard to tell that this is written by Westlake, but if you look for the for the signs, uh, they're well, there. Some lines, but then there's standout lines, and you're like, oh yeah, there he is. Yeah, there he is. But he's he's a he's kind of a ghost because he can hide his 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 skills if he likes. Um, his touches, he can in, indulge them more. But, um, the stuff you see at the beginning with the, the description of the boss and his mm-hmm. hands tapping yeah. on the thing and, and though just, you know, the way that it's so, it's always smooth. That's one way to tell. You know, it's really well written. It's so yeah. smooth. It goes down so easy. You don't even notice you're taking all this. Uh, it's not a medicine is exactly. It's more like skepticism. So this is, uh, from pretty, uh, Pretty early. Um, the copter took me to the spaceport west of Cairo. So he's just flown all the way from uh, New York <laughs> back uh, back across the uh, the planet to Cairo. And there I boarded the good ship Demeter. <laughs> I think he's being kind of... Yeah. Yeah, Demeter. Demeter. Um, but Demeter, I think, is a better way of pronouncing that goddess's name. Um, where they're headed for Luna, right? And notice he calls it the good ship. I love that. Right? Mm-hmm. I loaded up on G-sickness pills, and they worked fine. I was sick as a dog. So we've yeah. got this skepticism. <laughs> By the time we got to Atronic City, my insides had grown resigned to their fate. As long as I didn't try to eat, my stomach would leave me alone. Atronic yeah. City was about as depressing as a Turkish bath with all the lights on. Jesse, I was going to read that line also. <laughs> <laughs> it stood on a chunk of rock a couple of miles thick. 
and looked like nothing more in this world than a welder's practice range. Yeah. Um, which what I what is a welder's practice range? Uh, it makes me that, think of a gun range, but here I was, is I was thinking gun range, but that didn't, yeah that. Well, you know, like there's no such thing as a welder's practice range, but you get you get the image anyways, right? You totally do. From the outside, Atronic City is just a derby-shaped dome of nickel iron, black and kind of dirty looking. I suppose a transparent dome would have been more fun, but the builders from the company cities in the asteroids were businessmen, and they weren't concerned with having fun. There's nothing to look at outside the dome but chunks of rock and the blackness of space anyways and you've got all this cheap iron floating around in the vicinity and all a dome's supposed to do is keep the air in besides though the belt isn't crowded as a lot of people think there is quite a lot of debris rushing here and there bumping into things and transparent dome would be would just get all scratched up not to mention punctured so this is actually a theme we see a few times he ends up polishing his own spacesuits inside right and yeah. looking at looking through it and then seeing the other two spacesuits there yeah so yeah. That's, that's fun interesting that thing because uh, uh, of all that debris bouncing back and forth right. which actually jumps forward right so right. Could, uh, like he's he's very subtle yeah but, yeah it also dates the story because we know now that really the asteroid belt isn't that densely thick with stuff. I mean, a lot of the asteroid belt is like rock here, rock here, rock here, not this continual belt of well, stuff. Well, if you also I mean, start expanse, blowing up chunks of it, right. if you start blowing well, chunks maybe. off of this stuff, it's going to make a lot maybe. more. Have you yeah, seen the the yeah, orbits of or, shit orbiting Earth? Earth, it's like, right? Well, they have yeah. To, Move yeah, their satellites to avoid paint chips. Well, yeah. well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've seen, we've all seen the movie Gravity, right? There, well, that's uh, that's got some uh, physics problems too, but it's got some physics problems. But it, it I mean, it, it in a bad physics way shows off. It's that fun problem. from yeah. the from the inside. Atronic City is even jollier. So we got this <laughs> built-in cynicism, right? There's the top level directly under the dome, which is mainly a, par- a parking area for scooters and tuggers of various kinds, plus the office shacks and the SAer's office, the entry authority, the industrial industry troopers, and so on. The next three levels have all been burned into the bowels of the planetoid. Level two is the Atronics plant, and a noisy plant it is. Level three is the shopping and entertainment area, groceries, Stores and clothing stores and movie theaters and bars. So, capitalism. And level four is housing. Two rooms and a kitchen for the unmarried. Four rooms and kitchen plus one room for each child of the married. This is the the winners of capitalism too, right? All of these levels have one thing in common. Square corners painted all of drab. The total effect of the place is suffocating. You feel like you're stuck in the middle of a stack of packing crates. Most of the people living in Atronic City work, of course, for International Atronics Incorporated. The rest of them work in the, in the service occupations, running the bars and grocery stores and so on. That keeps the company employees alive and relatively happy. Wages come in high places like Atronic City. Why not? The raw materials come practically for free. And as for the working conditions, well, take for instance... Um, How do you make a vacuum tube? You fiddle with the innards and surround it with glass. And how do you get the air out? No problem, boy. There wasn't any air in there to begin with. So notice he's still dealing with vacuum tubes, right? 
This is not very, very, very Earth centric. This right. whole thing. Well, there, there's that, but more importantly, like the tech here is. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. like, it's pretty transistor. Uh, tangible and and of the now. Yeah, I know he's making it. He's putting it in your hand. Right? Yeah. At any rate, uh, there I was at Atronic City. That was as far as the Demeter would take me. Now, while the ship went to Ludlam City and Chemisant City and other asteroid business towns, my two suitcases and I dribbled down the elevator to my hostelry on level four. So this is actually very, very similar to the opening of, of, um, Anarchaos, right? Where Mm -hmm. he's got, he's on a transport ship and he's, he's headed to one planet and there's a bunch of other planets that this ship goes to. It's like a milk run, right? Yeah. And here we get uh, a visit to the asteroid belt, but you could imagine other adventures in this universe. I mean, they're implied with him just coming back from Luna, and there's going to be some Martians, probably, you know, we don't deal with any alien uh, alien insurrections put down by, uh, we call them aliens, but they're the natives, you know, sort of thing. But he's, he, he, I think he's very good at putting it in your hand and saying, this is what it is. And you don't even notice the sort of level skepticism that he's actually um, giving us. He's opted, uh, Westlake has opted out. And I think about how, uh, I don't know that much about his life before he became a writer, basically zero. Um, you know, he's, he started off in high school writing and then he went into the Air Force and he was a uh, what they call a snow top, which is a white helmeted, uh, MP, military police. And he did that for four years or something like that. And then just came out of that and went straight into writing, it seems. So he has a set of background for his, his, um, his writing career. And if you look like over the different, um, books you can sort of get hints as to what what was striking him so micey you you did a show with me a long time ago i'm pretty sure you were on it um called uh the man with the getaway face were you on that paul i i was the man with the getaway face so so it's a richard stark novel excuse me it's a second book in a uh series um not that you need to read them in series i read that one first it was amazing and it's about um uh well mycin let's see what you how you describe it do you remember it at I, all? I don't remember my, my my memory is like the worst okay so basically the premise on that one is uh our hero parker or anti-hero has just got uh plastic surgery at the beginning, before the book started, he's in the recovery, and then the doctor comes in and sort of threatens him. Says, "You better not tell anybody about me." <laughs> oh yeah, I was on that. That was uh, okay. March 2017. Yes. Yeah, it's a good book. Why, uh, great I, book. I, I believe I said, "Why haven't?" Why Will haven't needs to read sooner? that book yeah. because uh, yeah, that's what I, I don't know if that's our first Donald Westlake, but it's an early I, one. All I remember about it is falling in love with the author. Yeah, he's great. So uh, there's a whole background there. Yeah, with, this was my first Westlake too, I think. There's yeah. a whole background with uh, the driver being an ex-communist uh, uh, party enforcer. Basically, he was the guy who would hit hit back at the cops and stuff. He got hit on the head pretty early on and uh, mm-hmm. damaged. 
We also learn a little bit about Parker. He was in probably in World War II, I think. Um, and, uh, there he was basically doing what he did in civilian life, which is be a thief. So he would steal like yeah. Jeeps and yeah. trucks and, and tires and then sell them on the black market. Um, so Westlake started in law enforcement, but it was inside a law enforcement, which is with a very regimented kind of system where everybody has health care, right? If you're in the Air Force and, you know, you break your leg, you don't have to pay the insurance. It's covered. You go to the infirmary, right? Um, if you're hungry, uh, well, don't worry. Somebody's cooking. There's a guy whose job is to give you three square meals a day, right? And when it's time for you to uh, go somewhere, you don't have to pay a taxi. You get on the airplane that you're... It's basically being in the army is being in a socialist state. Now you don't have as much control, but he's a cop in a socialist state. And then he comes out of that. And now everything you have to pay for your health insurance, right? Your housing and they don't pay you. You have to pay them. And most people, I think in this situation, they just think, Oh shit, that's how it is. And they never think about it. But Westlake is some kind of weird intellectual even though you would never notice that from the way he writes but he's always thinking about this stuff and it sort of spins him into scenarios as weird as this one or as weird as uh the man with a getaway face interesting right i mean think about it you're you're a guy whose only way to make a living is to tell people lies and the more interesting your lies are the more you get paid. Yep. Yeah, my friend Elizabeth there says I tell lies for money as a way of describing her writing career. Right. And you can't really fake it in the sense that, like, <laughs> you can. No, you have to be good at the lies. You have to be really good at the lies. And he knew he was good at the lies because he was reading his own stuff and he had a brain in his head and he said, My God, this is good. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I thought, well, what makes it so good? I, I don't know that he's, he, I don't remember him ever doing this in any interview, doing this sort of psychoanalyzing his own thing. But somehow this is better than just reading a locked room mystery because I feel like there's some substance to it. And yet I can see him at the end saying, you know, when these, all these uh, science fiction stories written by Westlake were collected, they were c collected as tomorrow's crimes right i'm like that's really interesting they're almost none of them are feel like they're crime stories this one's sort of the closest to it because it fits that locked room mystery thing but really he he's sort of a philosopher of crime <laughs> which is kind of weird but that's sort of like the appeal i don't know if i told you this uh, about westlake misa and paul on the on that original man with a getaway face book but uh he uh he got a lot of letters from prison and yes you did say that yep and prisoners loved his his crime books they just thought this mm -hmm. is the best thing ever right you're speaking to me west like <laughs> <laughs> i really get this right because the main problem with people in prison right is rats right people ratting you out and you know pulling the perfect job is amazing uh, and great, but the problem is once you're outside the law, right? Once you can't turn to the cops for help, 
you're all on your own. That's always uh, Parker's problem. That's the main character of Men with a Getaway Face. That's always his problem. He can't trust his partners, right? And so that's a really... Uh, it's it's just like on Anarchaos. You can't trust people, um, you know... It, to give you a taxi ride, what's that big shocker scene that starts? You were you on that one, Anarchaos? Will? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it starts off with he just like, uh, you know, murders the person and takes all his stuff. Yeah, kills the taxi man. I was <laughs> 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 like, oh, okay, that's what he's here for, right? <laughs> he's here to enact his fantasy of power, his power fantasy of what it would like to be uh, in a libertarian state, right? And everybody's free to do whatever thou wilt. Yay! I'm going to kill this guy. Yay! Yay! I'm going to become a slave. <laughs> Yay! I'm going to get my hand cut off. Yay! <laughs> and I, and it's like that's really a funny way of thinking about like what he's doing is he's he's exploring like how do how do you survive in the tw- in the twentieth century being born in the middle of the twentieth century and seeing how things are everybody around you is busy being worker bees I I live in New York where what am I going to do oh, I'll I'll tell lies and people won't notice what I'm writing about <laughs> but they'll love it. <laughs> and until he left science fiction, they did, which is a, which I think I expressed in the previous podcast and probably in uh, in the in the getaway face. Like it's a shame that he left science fiction. It's it's yeah. really interesting, right? Because why would he do it? He he's obviously interested in it, and it's I think it was yeah, it just wasn't financially viable. So you have yeah, to, it was money, wasn't it? Yeah, right, it was and the, it was series is where money. series was where the money was. And that's why he has so many series books. Series is where the money is. Now he finds ways to make them interesting as best he can. But, you know, science fiction is kind of the opposite of series. And that's why you get this story. It's, it ends with, you know, it being finished. It, it is not a series. There is no. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not like the expanse, which, which is not, which is coming to a conclusion and also, uh, one one of Hugo for best series uh, this year, but it is coming to a conclusion after a lot of volumes. But is coming to a conclusion. But yeah, the the book after book after book is the dominant form in science fiction and fantasy these days. Singletons are rare, mm-hmm. and if seri- series don't finish, it's because they didn't sell well. Like my friend Melinda Snodgrass, who wrote uh, a bunch of Star Trek episodes, had a science fiction space opera series which I really like basically dropped because of lack of sales and mm-hmm. it's unfinished and it's like damn it so um i was thinking about also this being fulfilling a role of the thing that we're not supposed to be able to have which is uh science fiction can be applied this is from uh, asimov right um it's a detective story that illustrates the idea that Asimov ad- advocated science fiction can be applied to any literary genre rather than just being limited to its itself. So he he takes this thesis, right? He was a writer, Asimov was a writer of both crime and science fiction. Um, he showed up... Asimov or Westlake? Asimov. Asimov. Okay. So he showed, like, if you if you go look through his his list of short stories he's in Al- alfred hitchcock's mystery magazine as much as he's in uh the sister fnsf magazine 
right? I didn't know that. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because we 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 always know him from his his SF, right? That's mm-hmm. the genre we know him of, and that's the one that his movies, you know, have been adapted to in most of the TV shows and you know Bicentennial Man and uh, mm-hmm. I Robot and all that. But mm-hmm. he wrote a, a ton, a ton, ton, ton of crime and. He, I think there was some sort of challenge, basically. Somebody says you can't have a, a mystery, murder mystery or a mystery set, a real mystery set in a science fiction universe because we have to have this background that we know what the rules are. But Asimov said, no, that's not true. I can make the rules. <laughs> I can show you what the rules are and then you can figure it out. Um, and that's what Westlake did here, but the one I'm thinking of is The Caves of Steel, right? Which is yep. a murder mystery set on a future Earth. It's all actually quite similar to the, uh, the universe of the spy in the elevator, right? Where people don't go outside and they're uh-huh. siloed and they don't even like looking out the window, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, Science fiction mysteries, I'm also thinking of Larry Niven's The Hole Man as an example of trying mm-hmm. to play with the net up and trying to set up a real mystery in a science fiction context and make it value, make it work and make it, make it a fair for the readers. Because I, my theory of mysteries is a mystery is fair only if the reader has a chance to solve the mystery, right. given the clues in the story before the ending. And, and Will figured it out. It, Mm-hmm. And, we'll, and, and we'll figure out both parts. I figured out one part. We'll figure out both parts. So it's a fair mystery. It is. So that's I, I went back and looked, and it, it does say there's two suits sitting there. <laughs> like, he's um, looking around. He's doing the inventory, right? Yep. And it's there. Uh, uh, he he read herringed it so that we didn't notice it, but it's there. And then later, yeah, later he drops the thing like, oh, yeah, they don't have extra stuff. And then you, if you put two and three together, you get, oh, that's yeah. where he must be. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I was uh, when when um, when he was wa- um, polishing his his faceplate on his uh, silvered f- silvered visor. Yes, the silvered. Vi- and I was thinking this, like I was just thinking as as Donald Westlake, like I wonder if this is where the whole thing started. Like if he started thinking about mm-hmm. uh, a silvered faceplate and and then built a whole story around Brendan. that. Around the image. It's, yeah. it's a good image. image. Yeah. They use gold, I think, in the actual NASA suits, right? As opposed yeah. to silver. But silver is much uh, even more associated with coinage, I think, than gold is. You know, we think of gold and we think gold necklace or gold earrings. Um, you do have silver necklace and silver earrings and such, but uh, get your 30 pieces of silver or whatever it is. Thirty uh, pieces of silver. Yep. Is it thirty? Yeah. Okay. Right. It's, it's not forty. That'd be uh, nope. that'd nope. be uh, Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, forty-two. <laughs> no, that'd be. Uh, no, that's a that, that's Hitchhiker's Guide. That'd be Adams, but a different Adams. <laughs> uh, next Testament. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I yeah I think that I think that's pretty. There's a lot of domes right in this story. I mean, naturally for trying to keep air in it makes sense but if you look at the scooters they're called they're a dome right there's the there's the dome yeah. that is the sh- that, sitting on yeah, the, the asteroid yeah the the, the 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 way they get around kind of reminds me of a modern science fiction novel called finder by suzanne palmer which is set 
where an investigator comes into an as into a solar system full of asteroids and he gets around from station to station on these little on these dinky little scooter things, which are ridiculous. And now I wonder now I have to, now I have to ask her: Did she actually read the story? Being to take some of the visuals from that story and put that into her universe? I would guess not. It's it's. Um, you, you, know, I mean, she, you wouldn't need to. Fiction, so maybe you wouldn't but need it, to. It, it's it's interesting to think about even when this is being written. Right there's there's an Apollo program. Uh, very soon, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But there isn't an Apollo program that's uh, in full swing. So they've sent people into space, but not, uh, you know, 1961, really early. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the description of that scooter, I'm going to just read that here so you can see. Um, the appearance of the scooter uh, I was shown at the rental agency didn't do much to raise my opinion of this mode of transportation. <laughs> nice understatement there. The thing was a good 10 years old. The paint scraped and scratched all over its egg-shaped, originally green-colored body. And the, notice that that green, that's the color of the olive drab, right, of the, of the city, right? It's very army, right? And the windshield... A silly term, really, for the front window of the craft that spends most of its time out where there isn't any wind was scratched and pockmarked to the point of translucency by years of exposure to asteroidal dust. Right? So, yeah, it's going to get him there. Um, but then when he describes what happens if he makes a little error, right, he'll be floating forever. Mm-hmm. I will, I would have just floated around amid the scenery until some passerby took pity and towed me back home. I think that is even like a more charitable thing, right? <laughs> then it, it makes space seem a lot smaller than it is. Yeah. I mean, it's also of, foreshadowing too. A it is. Bit. It is. Yep. I mean, the odds of someone finding them before the air runs out is low. You, you jump off that asteroid and achieve escape velocity. You're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, unless of course there's someone right there to rest. You and of course we have the whole wrangling. Like, I was drunk, Mister. I wasn't going to go going after him, which 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 makes rational sense. Of course, you're not going to try to pilot this thing when drunk because you'll probably kill yourself as well. And so it's it, it's it's nice. It's 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 a well thought. I mean, his 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 whole explanation. I think he was ready for the investigator to come, but not one quite clever and as he as he wound up getting to basically answer all those questions. He, he just—he just. He's ran a money man. Story. He's not an imagination man. Well, we're actually yes, him a in a certain man. sense, right? We're we're him because we don't see that second. Did, Will, did you see both of them coming? Wait, that uh, that he was actually the guy, and that um, our guy was going to get the money, and our hero Jed was going to yeah. get the money. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I saw I saw the first one before I saw the second one. Yeah, the first yeah. one's easy to see. I think compar- comparatively. Yeah, yeah, but it it was when he was hanging out on the asteroid. Uh huh. He took so long to come home. Yeah, because because he's on vacation for ten days, and we already described this place as a dump. Well, yeah, if you get that drab, yeah, sitting on the plane, space. It's like why would you stay for ten days on an asteroid you hate? Exactly. Um, I mean, I'm also like, like I said, like in my imagination, anyway. I'm like a little inquisitive, so like. So the first thing is like okay, um, so no, so it's this giant like pile of like metal that is worth a lot of right. money that like nobody else knows where it is but our main guy. I mean, it's just like sounds like do? you're really empathizing with this story. I mean, wouldn't I mean uh, yeah? I mean, if you uh, if you could steal that giant pile of metal, like wouldn't you? Well, see, that's the thing. Is it, it 
It, I, it never would have occurred to me because I'm so distant from the, the events of the story. It's just an intellectual exercise, right? I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the fun of the writing, but I'm not feeling like the guy. <laughs> but you're feeling like the guy. Yeah, yeah. I identify. I mean, and I, I'm a little bit different from you, right, Jesse? Yeah, clearly. Like, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, like, I don't... Uh, other than being I, very young. <laughs> well, other than being very, very young, I'm also just like, you know, somebody who, like, uh, works an office job. I mean, this guy doesn't right. work an office job, but he has the same kind of, like, attitude of, mm. the, like petty bourgeois technician right yeah like, oh that expense like, account man that's the yeah, best part well, of the job like a, you know he's a, he's living a life of uh, of quiet desperation right mm-hmm. like he's and so he's he's found a way out I, I, and, I, and, I, and as as i was listening to this i was thinking suddenly of fight of fight club and how we have a <laughs> insurance guy as our main character who finds his way out by breaking his own identity yeah because he's just sick of his own job it's, uh, it's thinking about it that way. There's a lot of identity switching here, isn't there? Yes, there is. Good point. Um, yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the of, of Bullet for Cinderella a little bit in terms mm. of the like. Um, what a great I mean, book. the cultural universe yeah. that it comes out of is uh, the like the degenerate middle classes. That's the uh, upcoming mm-hmm. or just listen to. A Don, uh, John D. McDonald book that we we did. Yep. Yeah, yeah, because he's basically trying to change his own identity in that novel, mm. and yeah, grasping for it. And the ending does he or not? I mean, we argued: is he going to wind up with the girl? Or not? I think we argued that episode whether he is going to or not, and it's not clear. But he's certainly trying. For it. <laughs> it's funny thinking about it. There's a a, a novel we should. Uh, we should just eventually do all of the Westlake novels because they're so good. Uh, Agreed. <laughs> we can do that. There's one called um, uh, The Green Eagle Score. Uh, um, I love the the Westlake. Uh, this is actually a, a Stark novel, so it's Parker. Um, and the, the, the titles run in sort of streaks, so they'll have... Um, uh, I'll just bring up the list of Parker novel titles. Um I'll explain this after. Uh, so basically, um, not paper novels, Parker novels, and then Westlake, that, or Stark, that'll bring it up. Okay, so in the Green Eagle score, um, Parker decides to rob a uh, an Air Force base, <laughs> which is My funny because, <laughs> because he was the guy whose job is to prevent that, right? Being a nice. MP. <laughs> um, and uh, so he's like, you want to knock over a, an Air Force base? There's army guys all over that place, right? <laughs> Which is pretty funny, saying calling them army guys, even though they're, <laughs> they're not. Um, but on the ground, they are army guys, right? So uh, in that, he'll have like a whole... He'll just come up with a premise like he and his wife go to a concert or something, right? Well, that rock concert sure is loud, right? And then he says, great cover for, for a heist. <laughs> you can jackhammer all night. Nobody will know. <laughs> and think of all the money from the concessions, right? Because it, it, it's all those all, all hundreds of thousands of people going to this concert or whatever number. I don't know. How many people go to concerts? 10,000? Whatever. Some rock concert. Probably depends. <laughs> yeah, after the virus, who knows? 
Yeah, that's right. Wow. Three three or four years from now, we'll know how things things are settling into, right? Mm. All right. Here, I want to I want to read you the titles, and you'll start to see the pattern. Uh, first book's called The Hunter. It was going to be a standalone. Um, he fixed the ending because the publisher says, "I want more of these." And he says, "Fine." Uh, the man with the getaway face. Uh, the outfit. The mourner. The score. The jugger. The seventh. The seventh is the seventh book in the series. And it's also, um, it's also, uh, how, how they split the money, right? Everybody gets a seventh of the, of the score. And then the handle. And then we get a streak here. The rare coin score, the green eagle score, the black ice score, the sour lemon score. Scores. Uh, then. He has a score to settle. That's right. Deadly edge, slay ground, plunder squad. <laughs> butcher's moon and then this is a the streak that was uh happening while i started reading it um after 1974 there's a break of a uh, couple of decades between books uh and it's 1997 comeback right then next year back a uh, back back flash flash fire fire break breakout you see the pattern so it says come back, and then the next book is back flash, and then the next book is flash fire. So he takes half of the title, right? Mm-hmm. He's just being playful. Uh, yeah. And then fire break, and then breakout. And breakout is set, uh, Parker has to escape from a prison, which he does very quickly. Um, he starts in prison. And then uh, getting close to the end here, nobody runs forever. Um, and then ask the parrot. <laughs> and then dirty money. Uh, so those, that's the main run of sequels of, uh, the Hunter of the Parker books. Um, and it gets really weird because Parker's this guy who, who's, you know, he's a hunter, right? He's out for revenge in the first book and then he becomes a shark. That's sort of mm-hmm. the metaphor for him. He's always has to keep moving and he gets money, but it's just to acquire, uh, sort of money so that he can waste it so he can go on his next score. Uh, but eventually he gets married <laughs> and his wife is like, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> Just keep me in, in flowers and champagne, right? And go, go do your thing. I don't, I don't like your friends calling here. Right? <laughs> 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 and, and it's like, oh yeah, well, Wesley got married in the in- intervening years, right? Um, so the, the character gets married and then they they start getting silly like ask the parrot i mean that's inviting yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the sour lemon score i mean of course i mean it's not actually heisting lemon so he he's got a real sense of humor um even though these are like dead serious books right but there are no parker somebody will make a joke in the book and then parker didn't like that <laughs> <laughs> Because sharks don't laugh at jokes, <laughs> but we can, as as uh, not being Parkers ourselves, we can appreciate all these sort of funny doings that are going on in the background. I, d- I just think it's amazing we can see these insights into a person's character um, by reading what is essentially throwaway stories, right? Just an afternoon's entertainment. Mm, definitely. I mean, he he, he made something. That lasts further than probably he thought it ever could. It's really, and, uh, yeah, like it's different from like making a movie, right, or making a uh, a TV show, some commercial product where a whole bunch of people are involved. This is, you know, write, writing a story. It's 
the person, one person generally, you know, there are two person stories or God knows sometimes multiple person collaborations on writing, but you don't get any sense of through line there. I don't think where you get that with this. It's why like, you know, yeah, sure. They can adapt these things to movies and stuff, but don't you, wouldn't you rather know what H Ryder Haggard was thinking, like his thoughts than somebody's adaptation of H Ryder's Haggard's uh, great novel. Mm-hmm. Right. I've never seen a good adaptation of a H. Ryder Haggard book. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think they would adapt. They don't seem to be adaptable well. But even like, like yeah, the, they're too ponderous. They're too um, way too ponderous. But even the even the uh, yeah, the length is not right for what they want to do with it. It's it, it's interesting how stuff like uh, not just Haggard but um, Burroughs, right? He's been adapted lots of times, but they don't get him right mm-hmm. either. Every, Limited success. It, uh, uh, all those Tarzan movies, and we get a sort of a, it's it's kind of the same way that you know the original uh, Frankenstein movie gets Frankenstein so wrong, right? It, it's 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 good and it's its own thing, but it's not really the book, hmm. right? It's, right. It's not anything close to the book, really, even though it has the same outline. And that, that that's um yeah I mean it's just it's very different from like uh, there's a you know Tarzan's like just like the smartest man who ever lived like taught himself how to read mm-hmm. by just looking at books mm-hmm. like kind of guy versus like I uh, you know I Tarzan you Jane I Tarzan indeed Eugene. or um uh, think of the think of the Frankenstein's creature in the movie Frankenstein fire bad. <laughs> As opposed yeah, to yeah, the guy yeah, who's giving yeah. the soliloquies, yeah. uh, right. uh, and and very much like Tarzan, having read uh, four books and over the shoulder of people through a crack in a wall, right? Yeah, <laughs> he learned yeah, to speak yeah. and read, and now he's the most eloquent man who ever lived. There, there's, uh, they're completely different kinds of 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 things, and so there are lots of Westlake movies, and they're fun. They're definitely fun, but. Just, you know, you can't see those hand ge- hand gestures. <laughs> and you can't get these wry lines that you don't even notice are so full of, I don't know. It's like, a, I'm not an alcohol drinker, but I imagine all these different flavors of cocktails, you know? Uh-huh. And he's yeah. definitely got a flavor. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like, yeah, and it's like a... It's like a bitter flavor. It is. It's bitter, but it's also delicious, right? But it's, are, there, oh, yeah. are, there, are there bitter bourbons? No. I don't know. Probably rye. Uh, yeah, 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 rye sounds sounds more logical. But it's also very fluffy. It is very. It feels so fluffy. Yeah, yeah. But his turn of phrase, like you just stop and you go, oh my god, that's so good. It is so good. He's so good at that, and and yet, uh, it isn't. It isn't like, you know, reading Lester Del Rey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Lester Del Rey is so ham-fistedly bad, yeah. but you kind of like him anyways. Whereas West, like he's he's not like that. He's so smooth. Mm. He'll get you drunk. You don't even know you're drinking. It's true. He's, uh, you sure this isn't what, a virgin what, margarita? What, what, it's a, well, my my favorite Delray is probably for I am a jealous people, but yeah, it is kind of clunky. It oh, he's terribly clunky. 
it, it, it's, it gets its point, but it's clunky to get to that point. I wish somebody would take that idea and write it smoother <laughs> and cleaner. <laughs> it just needs a polish for sure. It, 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 it definitely needs a polish. Uh, for those listeners who don't know, for I'm a Jealous People basically is less to the story where aliens come and they say they're backed by God and God has turned away from us. And it turns out, yeah, the God that we thought we know and loved is decided to side with the aliens and the humans are, well, he's good at lifting. Yeah. to work. He, he was, uh, Lester Del Rey was really good at lifting ideas and saying, this is a great idea for a story. And then sort of doing a really terrible job with it, but still you appreciate it. So there's, one I did not too long ago called The Faithful for reading short and deep. Oh, so this thing you didn't do on this podcast. No, no. Um, and it's got a great illustration. Ptolemy remembered man. The expedition had met with success. And you see this dog looking at a TV screen. Um, and there's a man looking at a, a gorilla. And this is actually the story is uh, every all the humans have died. Um and the robotic dogs, uh, not robotic dogs, the, uh, uplifted dogs, um, are, were fighting the war of humanity against itself, right? Some humans killing other humans and they've got these dog pilots with, I don't know, surgically altered hands and enhanced brains. And, uh, the dogs are like, this is, this is terrible. The last man has died. And then we gotta, we gotta get this planet back into shape. So they go to Africa. And get this is a very will story now that I think about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just like listening this, with rapt attention. This like, we got to go to Africa and get the, these gorillas who who uh, were uplifted uh, into the system so we can rebuild society. And um, they've got like one man left uh, to give them advice and stuff like that, but he's dying. And uh, it's it's a terrific uplift story, but it's so badly written. That you say, oh yeah, these lines are not not very good, and uh, that's kind of super racist right there. <laughs> it's just because he's so <laughs> ham-fisted. However, um, it's like a thousand times better than like a cool title. Like, do the dogs call him like something <laughs> that makes you feel sentimental, or is it too uh, that? Well, I'll just re- I'll read you the opening here. Uh, yeah. Today, in a green and lovely world. Here in the mightiest of human cities, the last human race, uh, the last of the human race is dying, and we of man's creation, capital M, are left to mourn his passing and to worship the memory of man, who controlled all that he knew, save only himself. See, that's a very weak West. Uh, Westlake would make that beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Lester Del Rey, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, but it, it doesn't make me like want to like. No. I feel like there's a way to write that paragraph. Oh yeah, like make yeah. me want to weep uncontrollably. Indeed. Yeah, if Clifford C. <laughs> Mac did it, you would me. weep. And he yeah. did write that too. He wrote those ex- this exact same story, except better. Have uh, you have you read um, Brian Aldiss's Who Can Replace a Man? Yes, and I've done it on the uh, Reading Short and Deep. It's and you didn't invite me. It's one of my favorite on stories. Reading Short Shame and Deep. I don't yeah. invite anybody. <laughs> It's two people. Shame on you. Shame on you. Wow, Paul, you should listen I, to it. It's got a format. I know. I know. I'm just. I'm just giving you grief for the sake of giving grief. For- All right. Well, this is uh, the important part of this story. Is it's from 1938, right? Uh, and it, you know, this is it went on to spawn uh, many other writers, including C Mac and City, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it, this is kind of a lift from the island of Dr. Moreau, 
as well. It's just saying, you know, if this goes on, and it did, um, you add in uh, World War One, and you say, oh, World War Two's on the cusp, and these uh, science fiction writers are talking about, you know, super science. So he he's in there. He's making moves, Lester Del Rey. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, wait uh, four decades, and then David Brin comes onto the scene and says, wait, 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 you, you made a story that only takes 20 minutes to read? I got this. I got this. Here's a 10-hour novel <laughs> and four more 10-hour <laughs> novel, t- 10 to 12-hour novels doing the same thing. Huh? You like that? <laughs> I mean, That's... I feel like what's what's missing in your chain, of course, is Planet of the Ape. Oh, yeah. Um, there's tons of yeah, stuff. Yeah, like, that, like, connects. Uh, oh, yeah. There's uh, tons of stuff. And C-Mac does this really well. He's got dogs um, mourning over the last man, right? Um, and robot dogs and robots take over the earth. What, what's the CMAC one called? Uh, it's called City. It's a it's a fix up novel. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and really? City, City actually just won a retro Hugo. It did last weekend. It did. Oh wow! Um, so it says the original version consists of eight length short stories, all originally published between 1944 and 51, and brief notes on each of the stories in between. Um, my favorite favorite of those being desertion, which didn't. It's win a Richard it's a great Hugo, story, sadly. But that's my favorite. I, I we did desert. We did do a couple of C Max, and I we mentioned did. it. We did very very fun. C Max yeah. great. Yeah. I want to do Cemetery World. Well, we should find that audio and put it on the. It doesn't exist. List. It doesn't oh, exist. Damn. Almost okay. no C Mac is out well, there. It's ridiculous. Just to make sure I haven't missed something, just like really beautiful here. Mm-hmm. Um, the. Uh, so did we get talking into like this like animal stuff because there is a Donald West like story of the same topic hmm. or is it or did we just go sideways? I think well, that's what we do is go sideways. We went sideways. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I just I don't think I there's a read the the super cynical story where like uh you know like some like cynical detective is talking about how everything smells and then like five <laughs> seconds later it's like oh this is a dog man. <laughs> 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 Sounds great. Um, I'm going to take this a little farther afield. Um, there's a, uh, I think about this story a lot and I, I became friends with the author. He's not well known. Um, his name's James Powell. I haven't actually talked to him for a few years. I don't know if he's still alive. Um, but, uh, bad friend, Jesse, bad friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were sort of email friends. I had him on the podcast uh, once or twice. And if you go into the early episodes, I've got a couple of his stories um, in there, and there's some amazing stuff. Um, James Powell, born 1932, Canadian author of mystery and humorous short stories. Many of his 130 stories have been published in Ellery Queen, uh, nominated for a Crime Writers Award, blah, blah, blah. Um, won an award for his story, quote, A Dirge for Clown Town. Now, this is a very well story. Um Featuring Inspector Bozo of the Clown Town Police, <laughs> Powell's occasionally dark sense of humor, blah, 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 blah. So let me tell you about this uh, story, Dirge for Clown Town. It's the first one I read of his. Um, it's about uh, a Bozo the Clown, uh, Bozo the, the cop. He's a, he's a world-weary, uh, down-on-his-luck aging clown de- detective, and he has to solve a murder. Um and everyone else in the world is a clown. <laughs> so this is a, this is a clown police procedural. It's, it's a clown police like procedural. Those, it's a noir. I, I, yeah. 
What's the uh, What's the name of that popular movie about the animal detectives where everybody's an animal? Uh, I know that there was a recent one that was like a uh, like Shakira is in it. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. It's like that. It's like it's like a like it's like a but it's a hard boiled clown detective yeah. story. Yes, it's a hard boiled clown detective story in a clown universe. So uh, you know. Everybody has a red nose <laughs> that they bought, and um, his his clown wife, and right, everybody's a clown, um, and it's it's just given up straight like this. We should we should all know this. Um, and then uh, there's a, actually a another a race other than the clowns. The clowns, I guess, are the white people. I don't know. They're the they're the most common people. And then there's this other race. They're the mimes. <laughs> yes and there's some there's a there's a mime on vine violence in this and uh mime on mime violence yes and they call it a mime and uh, of a course mime. the way you you heard a cl- uh, mime is by um pretending to punch him you you throw your fist towards his face and then about an inch away you you pull it back right and then the mime falls back as if he's been hit right mm-hmm. because they're they stick with their uh their birth. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're a mime race. <laughs> they're a mime You've race. You've never read Discworld, have you? Uh, no. In, in the Discworld novels, the patrician, the ruler of Ankh-Morpork, Pork, hates mimes, so if he catches a mime, he sticks him in a pit and makes him basically break character in order to get out. Yeah, he doesn't like mimes at all. In, in any case, um, this guy, James Powell, he, he is a not a fantasist in the normal sense, right? But this is a fantasy novel. Or not novel. It's a fantasy story, um, because it's not set on Earth, right? A, and yet it's not a fantasy with magic. It's a fantasy with clowns. And so it doesn't fit in the normal, you know. Is it like slipstream? No, it's, a, it's a, it's a regular detective murder mystery, <laughs> except that it's set in the clown universe. It's just so weird. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just feel like that's got to be its own literary thing. It is its own literary thing, right? And this guy is not going to be known through the ages, uh, at least right now, because it's just so different. Too soon to tell, Jesse. Too soon to tell. Yeah, it's that that was a long time. It was 1989 that story came out. It's not like it's, you know, he's he has a few collections out, um, and he's a great writer. Um, so it's uh, he's got he's got he's got another one uh, that's in the feed. People should go back and listen to it. It's called uh, the Code of the Poodles. That that's actually that's the one that I was making uh, made me think um, <laughs> of this guy Will for you because you like you wanted a dog reference. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like it it it, it, it combine. There's a lot of things going on in the title Code of the Poodles, right? Yes, it really is. gets you ready for something. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah. So um, I'm gonna read the description. This is episode 81, maybe the first audiobook or something. Uh, featuring a complete unabridged reading of The Code of the Bulls by James Powell. This humorous fantasy crime story from uh, one of the best in the business. Uh, first published in... Oh, and his first published story is uh, The Friends of Hector Jouvet. Great story. That's episode 30 of the SFF Audio podcast. Code of the Poodles comes to us from James Powell. <laughs> Recently published collection of short stories, A Pocket Full of Noses. <laughs> <laughs> making this up. No. I feel like this is an elaborate joke on me. No, it's like... not. <laughs> and then here's my description. I also did the art for it. Uh, 
In, in her will, Aunt Flora left all her money, her house, and her estate to the care of Peaches, uh, Peaches Mimoso, her miniature apricot poodle. Her nephew, Toby, has a, hasn't a legal leg to stand on. Uh, no, not unless he can get a psychiatrist to declare Peaches' guardian non-compass mentis. See, this is made for will here. Uh, but Peaches never, never to wet lend, <laughs> let things lie has a few plans of her own. That's the, the poodle has a few plans of her own. Oh, I followed. Oh, I followed. <laughs> First published in uh, October 1990 issue of Ellery Queen. I, I, I think how we got here is because Westlake is, he's a unique voice. And with Lester Del Rey, he's got a unique something, but it's not, it's not a voice exactly because his voice is. I'm Lester. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, unique. Yeah. But, concepts, man. Right. He's he was good at, at taking concepts and running with them, but not so good at executing them. And 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 he's not like a he's not like an Ed Wood where you read it and you say this is so bad it's good. He's yeah. he's just he's just like ah, I'm gonna do a rough sketch here and this is good enough. I'm done. Typical smart kid. Yeah, I'm going to send you this link, Will. You'll love it. My sin, you haven't heard this? No. Okay. Was this, this was pre-MISA? This is pre-everybody. Well, no, because I heard a, a lot of the early, early ones. Did so you? maybe I did, but, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, in, in the sands of time. Episode 81. But now I will. Uh, I'm gonna click on the other one. Friends of Hector Jouvet. I did the art for that too. That's a that's a good story. It's set in um, basically. I think we're done, right? Ish. I think I think we're done. Yes. Yeah. It's set yeah, in. You have a way to circle this back to Westlake. Uh, I, I can't agree. imagine. Okay. Um, so yep, we're done. Thank you, listeners. Uh, <laughs> here's the description of it. Just so I know it's wrong. I wrote up yes. a young Canadian dentist. While backcap- backpacking through Europe, finds himself atop a high cliff, looking over the a principality on the French Riviera, standing in for uh, a principality. Yeah, that's a strange word. Like, what is it like? Supposedly, like a little. It's little... Monaco. It is Mo- okay. So I was saying, oh, Monaco. I couldn't think of any Monaco other is a principality. It's basically a fake Monaco, right? I couldn't think of any other Monacos. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, it's a fake Monaco. It, it's 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 like a in universe. It's the same thing as. Monte Carlo. Um, uh, standing behind him is a mysterious older man, a local resident, who needs to tell him a story. Um, and so basically, this is like a guy who went to the casino and lost all his money. Uh, maybe his wife's money, too. And now he's about to jump off the cliff. Uh, Zootopia, that's the one. I never watched it. This is a millennial movie, I think. <laughs> that might be a Zoomer movie, actually. Zoomer, that's uh, what I mean. I don't know what the difference is. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, but Shakira, the the Latin pop star, mm-hmm. plays I think a peacock in this movie. Um, Not a peahen. And uh, I've never seen this movie, but uh, my friend and I went to go see Captain America: Civil War, and mm-hmm. the credits for this movie was still were still playing in the theater that we went to. Okay. Uh, and at the at the end of the credits, there was like a long music video that was like Shakira as like a peacock doing a music video. Okay. And so uh, cro- yeah, I don't know. Transgender peacock. Say again. Transgender right. isn't Shakira transgender. female? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she would have been transgender. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, yeah, because behens are not very exciting. 
yeah, yeah. But you know, it's it's all about uh, you know how a fox can get along with a rabbit or something. Ah, like, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like supposed to teach you about racism. Uh, what's the line? Cat, a cat may look at a king. You know that line. Um, but the king may not look at the cat. No, no, no. It's like even a cat may look at a king. So it's like uh, may look at a king. I just feel like it, like a, a king compared to a cat, like which is more grand? It's like obviously the cat. Uh, it's a proverb. Uh, even a person of low status or importance has rights. Uh, yeah, yeah. All of and they're all, but like we're all like small beneath the cat. Huh. But a lion is a cat. <laughs> a lion yeah, is a king. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also just think that cats are like very regal in their way, and yeah. uh, there's too many of them. That's the problem. Oh, I, I there's this funny thing. I haven't tweeted it yet. My mom said it, and then I'm like, this sounds like something Paul would like. Um, uh, I'm like, that's bullshit. That's nothing. I've never heard you say that in all the years I've known you. <laughs> and she's no, it's a thing. It's uh, at least it's a thing in Alberta. That's where my mom was born, right? Um, and the line is, it's a Canadianism. I bet mice has never even heard of it either. Uh bring it up here. I, w- I want to get it right the first time. No. I went through my past. Hmm. Not coming up. Did you watch Lower Decks yet, Misa? No, I, 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 um, I don't know where to watch it. It's on the torrents. Oh, on the... <laughs> yes. <laughs> you could watch it on CBSL Access. Let's definitely pay for that. You'll love it. Right. <laughs> you can watch Picard again. Right. Yeah, no, I canceled my um, subscription. It was on Crave. Picard was on oh, Crave. Oh, is it? I okay. It. Yeah. So it's probably there. I guess I could get that back. No, there. I'll just Dropbox it to you here. All righty. I mean, you you want to feel bad about uh, the state of, of Star Trek, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to grab this. So the I think the line, I can't find it there, but um, it's basically... Uh, he ate the biscuit. That's the line. I've heard that. Have you heard it? You know what it yeah. means? No, but I have heard it. So somebody will say he ate the, the it ate the biscuit or he like ate he the died. biscuit. Isn't that what it that's, means? That's that's what it means. He died. Yeah. Um, yeah. and can you figure out why that is? Because I like, oh, that makes total sense. Why did what why does that, that mean, mean he died? Yeah. He ate uh, the biscuit. Yeah. Does biscuit mean cookie in it, Canada? It means biscuit <laughs> like a savory uh, no it can mean that but it doesn't have to mean that okay but, so it, can, it, like, but notice I, I said this is for Paul this is for Paul so Paul should be able to figure it out especially if he thinks it's for biscuit? Paul oh, took like a communion wafer? that's exactly what it is okay. oh so that makes sense. it's a World War One Canadian army a way of saying kick the bucket yeah Right, and he bought the farm. That's a World War Two American one, right? Yeah, he bought the farm. So uh, I, I always assume that bought the farm was, or maybe it's from uh, Korean War. It's it's from some World War Two movie or Korean War movie I've never seen, where we meet this young, plucky new replacement soldier who's joining a veteran unit, and he says, "Yeah, I just came home." Just came join the army because you know I'm a plucky young guy, and then and you no, know, when I get home, I'm gonna buy that farm down next to my dad's house. 
right? And then he gets killed. And then one says, what happened to Jimmy? And he says, he bought the farm. Uh, <laughs> Which doesn't make a lot of sense, but I, I figured that'd be you like... Get like some, you might get some kind of death benefit. Like. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. serious. Yeah, no, I agree that that... That's, life insurance. Yes, they had to do that eventually because the soldiers were out in the streets complaining about how they're not getting their stuff. The bonus army, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Bonus army. Give me a bonus. Mice is like, I'll just back away slowly. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. Did we get a will yet? Oh, I'm here. I've been listening. Oh, good. Will's been oh, Hey, Misa. I'm going to have to kill you hey, too, Will and Paul. Um, because as witnesses? Yes, I don't want you to. You could absorb. You could absorb four brains in one body. That's a different story. Jesse's cannibalism fantasy, I think, is actually like playing out now. Like that's uh, that's part of this too. (laughs) Jesse's waiting for the cannibalism mod for PUBG. Uh, yeah, there is actually in Fallout. There, there was one where you could, you could be a cannibal. Um, Really? uh, Yeah, you know how like. it's kind of a leftover from you guys ever. Oh no, Will wouldn't. He wasn't born when they invented it. Uh, uh, <laughs> Ultima, remember Ultima? I remember Ultima. I I I played the first five Ultimas plus yeah. Ultima Underworld one and two. Right. So Ultima is at the beginning of the game is really weird. They would give you like a I don't know a personality test or something, and but that that was only Ultima four. Ultima one, two, three, and the others didn't have. They had a personality test where you meet where you meet the uh, with the, the old woman, and you have to pick the, the different things. Yeah, and I don't that, know. Yeah, they just give you a personality test, and then and then the questions are really hard. Like, thou art thou art a uh, noble knight. Uh, your lord asks you to do something immoral. What do you do? Do you obey your lord, <laughs> or do you right? And then so you answer those questions, and then they give you a score. At the yeah. end, and I had no idea what the point of that was, other than it was interesting. But in in Fallout, if you uh, if you um, just behave certain ways, like you go into a village and just shoot up random villagers, um, you get a bad reputation. And then if you go into a graveyard and dig up people, you get a bad reputation. But it's, sometimes they give you like superpowers, mm-hmm. like the ability to harvest flesh from uh, your enemies and get food that way and stuff like that so or like skyrim like if you you start causing crimes in a town yeah if you go back to the town then you could get arrested at any time and get thrown in now you're now you're talking will's language yeah yeah (laughs) in skyrim there's a there's a special like ring you can get where you can become a cannibal awesome i'm i'm playing i'm I'm putting my money down I i never did get that ring (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just get a little like, like health bump if you like eat somebody. Mm. I I made the mistake of of, ad, of getting that vampire add-in pack, and I hated that storyline because they just kept killing everybody I liked. 
Oh. <laughs> I do. And I couldn't turn. I couldn't disable. It's like, damn! I don't want the vampires. Go away. In mm. uh, in Fallout, there's also um, a whole Philip K. Dick uh, androids line. Like, uh, you you meet up with this dude, and it turns out he's an android, and then you can go find the. Refugee androids, it's like basically they're slaves and they're hiding, they're, they've got hidden identities. And then one of the people you're talking to is an android with false memories. So it's pretty good. Cool. Yeah. It makes I you want to play, right? It does. I don't like to play, but I'd like to read the story. Yeah. Well, you can watch the uh, YouTube videos with um, with the people playing through those, those scenarios and stuff. But uh, I'm not a... Uh, no, I don't think I would do that. Yeah, it's not that great. <laughs> Do you it's watch a lot of YouTube? You're going to do that to watch somebody live on Twitch eh. playing something. That's more interesting than watching a recorded YouTube. I don't I don't I don't agree. I know, I I I know that you're you're more po- your theory is more popular because people love streaming, watching people stream, but Well, so so, so sometimes you just want to relax and you don't feel like you actually want to play, but watching somebody fumble around trying to kill this mechanical dinosaur is fun. To mm. me. Mm-hmm. That's um, no, no, that's Horizon Zero Dawn, which is this po- post-apocalyptic game, and there's mechanical dinosaurs running around. It's a rather interesting story and gameplay, in my opinion. Mm. Um, Will, do you watch a lot of streaming? You're young. No, no, <laughs> you're <no>. young. <laughs> uh, no, you're young. Uh, I think that uh, like sometimes Meg and I will like start to watch a little streaming uh-huh. and then we'll be like oh never mind yeah uh, um i don't know i think i like there's probably streaming i could get into i just am like more into other things uh i'm like not that into video games hmm. i i was i was hoping one day to meet somebody i mean not too closely but you know someone i would know <laughs> who knows somebody who who can explain to me why ASMR is a thing that, and if it, if say, if they say like to me, to talk to you about ASMR. If, if they say, Jesse, it's pretty sick. You don't want to know. I'll say, okay, that's fine. Never mind. <laughs> Speaking as a cannibal, there's, there's things I will, uh, not, not want to hear about. <laughs> I have a, I have a quasi ASMR story from okay. like yesterday. All right. Yes. Uh, yeah. So this is, this is fresh. Um, <laughs> mm, I like fresh. Me. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So yesterday, um, uh, you know, I was just like hanging out in, uh, the bed reading comics off our like big TV. I'm like, shocked. I had an app set up for that. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, I get this text message from Meg, uh, my partner, and she's like, come visit me. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, all but you're on the bed. What, what, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, I, I don't know what's going on here. So I go downstairs. And she's been, like, listening to her headphones. And uh, one of the songs she was listening to, um, you know, does the thing where, like, in surround sound, uh, it'll play some in one ear. And then, like, we'll cross over and play in the other ear instead. Uh Uh Um, And uh, she's like, you know the phenomenon you get in your spine when that happens. (laughs) She's like, does your spine tingle when you hear that? And I'm just looking at her like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, and so she, she contacts our other friends about this and apparently, uh, you know, she has like, uh, some kind of synesthesia, yeah. uh, that's related to ASMR, um, uh, when she has that happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
Uh, most people with that, they uh, they don't know that it's weird, so they like never like like you know mention it to anyone. Right, right. But, I mean, why would I tell you that reds are actually purple unless you, you know, disagreed with that idea? Yeah, or if like reds made you have a like tingling sensation in your spine. What? They don't make you tingle? I'm looking at the Google <laughs> logo right now. That E is giving me such a a zap. A zap. Yeah, that's my ASMR adjacent story. Yeah, um, clearly it's a thing. But, but yeah, she she spent like eight hours yesterday. Wow, probably like reading about it and talking to people about it. Like, just so like she just to- discovered it yesterday. Yeah, and just like it totally got her off track of what she was working on, and was she just, must like, be a to zygote too. Hmm. Cool. How old is Meg? Yeah, I mean, I have I have a I have an older girlfriend. She's uh she's thirty four. Oh, she's a full-blown fetus. Oh, I'm 33. I'm joking. But, uh, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, she's a she's about um she's uh, one year and 18 days older than me. And how many hours? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I'd have to like uh, I'd have to know what time of day she was. Born. And also what time zone everybody's in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because she was born in Korea, so it's like it's different than when I was born. Um, uh, like I know when I was born, but I don't know what her her birth time was. So we'd have to figure that out. I'm not mm. sure it's in her paperwork. Um, well, well, we'll check your papers right now and we'll get back to yeah. hers later. Uh, yeah, Meg. Like everything we know about like Meg's like like pre America life comes from this little like Manila envelope that her adoptive parents received when she was adopted. So nice. Or my whole past is in an envelope. That's a good story. <sighs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Allegedly. That's her- a- that's a nice way to start a story. The whole process yeah. in the book. And yeah. uh, it's also it's also your uh, your Android with false memories thing too, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Adoptee with false memories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Android adoptee. I was just reading yeah. about uh, Max Blumenthal. He's a journalist guy. He was uh, he's covering a story on uh, Hong Kong protesters and one of the. Um, one of the most famous accounts, you know, the leader on the ground cited by all the Western news agencies. Uh, it's a white guy from the States who is cosplaying as a, a Hong Kong native. His, you know, logo was like a Chinese guy with sunglasses on. And it's like, this guy's blonde. <laughs> and he has a Chinese name. And it's, oh, yeah, one of those guys, <laughs> you know. Well, we, uh, Trump needs to come here and help us out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, all those Western. Where, where's your sense of romance, Jesse? Can't you just think that it's Lawrence of Arabia? Oh, it's definitely Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania, John. Yeah. John Clegg. And then they Patterson. killed him. Remember? What happened to poor Lawrence of Arabia? No. He knew too what? much. They, what happened to him? Oh, you guys didn't see the movie? Yeah. What happened at the end? I don't remember. He had to change his identity. Motorcycle accident, wasn't it? Uh, he changed his quote, identity. Quote, unquote, accident. Okay. Actually, I'm just making this Mo- up, but it's, not, it's, a, it's a nice theory. Motorcycle crash. Yeah. <laughs> was, was how, was Very how famous was incident. Yeah. Motorcycle yeah. crash. Um, yeah. I mean, he probably died that way, but he did have to change his name. So that tells you something. And he had to join the Air Force after being a colonel in the Army? Come on. Come on. Come on. 
<laughs> Come on, man. Did you, uh, you guys didn't see that Tucker Carlson thing where somebody finally made that point that I've been making for a long time? Whenever, whenever Donald Trump, uh, not Donald Trump, Biden talks to anybody on an interview and they ask him a question, uh, he says, have you had a cognitive test? And he says, no, come on, man. <laughs> they just put all those come on, mans together into a big clip. And I'm, I'm like, I pick up the like from Will. I also picked up the Biden. Come on, man. <laughs> come on, man. No like, that's, that's when I'm, uh, I'm taking my grade 12 exam. I, like- I'm, I'll, I'll get the question and I'll say, come on, man. <laughs> Cause I can't answer it. That's yeah. a grade that, 12 exam. I just do a lot of grade 12 exams, you know. Like, oh, grade 12 exams. Grade 12 English be... exam in my students studying up for it. And I, I say, when you get to the essay part, just say, come on, man. <laughs> and they'll let you be president. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Ooh. God. Have I sufficiently stayed off topic for your guys's? Well, no, you came maybe in and out of topic, I have to say. Yeah, now it may be time to actually record a podcast. I do have gaming today. All right, Paul. All right, I'm getting the I'm hint, a, I'm, Paul. A, I'm a busy person with lots of things that happen. Guten you burn. are. I mean, Warging. last night I was playing Burn Bright, and this afternoon I'll be playing Dungeon World, oh, and I wrote a book review yesterday, and West I was side. going to go out and shoot the bridge last night, but the game ran shoot long, the bridge? so that idea went kaplooey and now i'm podcasting with you guys so it's like well thanks for squeezing us in paul (laughs) it's not squeezing in you're an essential part of the jenga tower of my life (laughs) i just hope it doesn't collapse all right i'm crushed to death by paul's collapsing life (laughs) wow too soon will too soon too soon uh, so, um, you buying this story? Uh, I, I, for some reason, I'm pretending to be a conspiracy guy. Uh, you buying this story that, uh, nitrates, I, I'm, I'm doing double air quotes, nitrates were responsible for the explosion in, uh, in mm-hmm. Beirut? Um, I missed the I news. What the, happened? I you haven't seen the explosion? explosion? Yeah, I, yeah, that, that, that explosion, I mean, for people who have like PTSD and whatnot, that explosion is triggery as hell. Oh. Like, it, it was a ama- it was amazing in its destruction. How can how can you be worried about people who are triggered by Hiroshima and Nagasaki? <laughs> They're all dead now. No, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I mean, talk people with PTSD watching that. Nah, 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 nah. That 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 was a rather visceral explosion. And to watch that video. I mean, I don't have PTSD, but watch it. Oh my God! It's, it's like. Well, yeah, but it, 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 PTSD doesn't work for, you know, like like somebody punched me in the face when I was a kid. I, I see but a nuclear explosion. I don't think they're going to get triggered by that. PTSD and different triggers for Yeah, it. but so nobody's been witness to nuclear bombs for decades. Um, so, no, that, that wasn't a nuclear bomb. In, in virtually Beirut, a nuclear was, that bomb. That was a large explosion. I mean, like... Large. <laughs> Large. The whole city's gone. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like people who are in the Gulf War and whatnot, that's 
And no, those are those are big, bigger than that sort of devastation. I mean, yeah, no, in Iraq, what we being the you know, I don't. I think you're Iraq. over worried about it. I mean, maybe there's a dude who was there for the Moab and got all upset. But I, and and, and some people are more sensitive to those things than others. It's, it's yeah. human nature. Some but people anyway, see the yeah. nuclear bomb go off and they feel a tingle in their spine. <laughs> I don't know what what that explosion was. I did you look it up, Will? I'm looking it up right now. So type uh, in uh, Lebanon boom. I, I didn't really. see the video. Oh, you haven't seen the video? It's it's. I, I've, I've, I've seen it's a amazing. number of videos, including this woman who was rehearsing for her wedding when it happened, and the camera pans from her to the explosion. It's really? rather wild. Yes, it's wild. Wow. Yeah, it's definitely like huge. <laughs> huge. Huge. Yeah, there was the Halifax explosion is about the biggest thing like that. I think that it's slightly bigger than that. that. Like a train explosion? No, two ships. One packed with World War One bombs. Um in in New York City there's the story of the General Slocum. Which is a ship that blew up in the yeah. river. In the yeah, we there was one in Vancouver as well. Basically it happens all the time, right? Um I, in bed, in bed, in bed, in unsafe conditions. Yeah, these things happen. Um, or um, the Triangle uh, Shirtwaist Factory fire. Yeah, explosion. yeah, yeah. But that was uh, that was one one building in a city block or something, right? This is like yeah, but still, but I know this is larger. But I mean, the uh, f- at first I thought it was a grain explosion, but I don't think that there's oh, enough. And, and and that's a thing that's happened here in Minneapolis. Grain. Um, elevator. It turns out that yeah. grain, is, grain elevator. is it mentally flammable and explosive because what? of the dust? Yeah, yeah. any no, kind no, of no, dust, no. even metal dust uh, in the a, air, sorry, atmosphere. There's a, yeah, there's a museum here in Minneapolis called the Mill Street City Museum, and it's basically built on the ruins of one that went kaplooey at the end of the 19th century the problem is i don't think it's that you know like the size of the explosion it's kind of hard to judge but um the other thing is that the grain towers that were there not all of them were blown up so it it, i think the theory is weak that was my guess at first are you you talking about are you talking about minneapolis or beirut beirut Yeah, he knows going to Beirut. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's hopping over to Beirut. I didn't, no, I didn't know anything about grain there. I, I, so I mean, the, it's, a, it's at the docks, right? And there's yeah, a bunch yeah. of silos, uh, grain elevators. Okay. Yeah, and that's yeah, right and, very and close touched? to the explosion. Well, I mean, some of them are blown, off, blown up. Um, yeah. But uh, it's, you know, the, we're, all the surviving footage is pretty far from the explosion. So it's yeah. hard to tell. At first, and now I think the videos show that that seems unlikely. So their theory that somebody's parked a whole bunch of ammonium nitrate there well, for six years, yeah, there was just good plan, guys. This crap sitting there all this time, it was and, just sitting there for years. Yeah, and then somebody was. Uh, uh, the, it's a fireworks factory, so I mean, come on. <laughs> What's your theory, Jesse? Who did it? Uh, I would say stupid people. Uh, capitalism is the bad guy. Capitalism? <laughs> yeah. Well, no. capital, capitalism is not the hero. That's say again, Mesa? You need to, to what? To rebuild Beirut? To capitalism's going to... Brand gonna... new corporations? No, no. I, it's the bad guy. It's the thing that caused the explosion. Yeah. Uh, to what end? To what end? 
Um, incompetence. Oh, okay. So just stupidity then. It's standard greed. Uh, just no, like it's just cheaper to be unsafe in the yes, short term. Indeed. Uh, I mean, in the yeah. short term, yeah. uh, anyway. Yeah. Which is, you know, if you're an acquisitive uh, uh, port or something, you, you know. Or, yeah, I mean, boat. Or apparently, that uh, uh, Lebanon, as usual, is in the middle of a crisis. Anyways, so when has Lebanon not been in the crisis in the last century? Uh, last century, probably very early in the twentieth. Yeah, um, my point exactly. So it's been, I mean, ever since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, I guess it, Lebanon has been a basket case, of one way or the other. That's too soon, Paul. That's a. It's a World War One uh, people being blown up reference. You're triggering me. How about we trigger uh, start a podcast? Aha! Uh, I triggered the podcast. Here we go. There was a there was an earthquake in North Carolina. I heard, I heard that. that. Five point one. Yes. 5.1. Is is Trish okay? I assume she's okay. I, I mean, I, is that where she big, is? I didn't know. No, five point one's nothing. Well, I think she's in a different part of North Carolina. I think, but she's in Wilmington. Yeah. Okay. Five point one in a place that's not known for earthquakes at all is a little disconcerting. There's probably some minor damage. Hmm. In the area, because they don't build earthquake codes in North Carolina, because North Carolina is not supposed to get earthquakes. Yeah, yeah, I have a friend there. Last week it was a hurricane. This week is the earthquake. I, I think they're it's all the, the fracking over there. It's all the and fracking. They, just, well, they yeah, fracked it all up. Next plague. Yeah, yeah. I think North Carolina is like one of the more extreme states in the United States, and it like, and it's feel like extreme it can like extreme Carolina. <laughs> yeah, well, North Carolina it can kind of swing between different centuries, right? It can be like. Like a center of like like sounds like, reaction. Sounds it like a like, good premise for a novel too. You know, there's yeah, like this a yeah, whole bunch of regular like, states, and then this this other one. If you go to a special pass in the mountains, you can go back to 1760. <laughs> or like Reconstruction, like they had like uh, they were one of the only states where like the populist party was represented in like uh, a government coalition. Get, getting a lot of immigrants from the mountains in 1760. What, 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 what about uh, the former Labor Party here in Minnesota? Yeah, yeah, but like, like which this was be... like in the, but this was in the 19th century in the aftermath of slavery. There's a like coalition between white populists and black Republicans in North Carolina, which is just like you know. Who did the uh, show on po- uh, populism recently? Podcast, really good one. Uh, oh, it's um, uh, useful idiots. They had uh, uh, what's the guy wrote? What's the matter with Kansas? Who's that, that guy? You know who I'm talking about? I, I mean, I'm familiar the with the... Listen, the liberal. Reasons. What's his name? God damn it. Listen, Listen oh, liberal. This is, this Thomas Frank. Matt Iglesias. Thomas Frank uh, was on the latest uh, Useful Idiots podcast. He's talking about where the term populist came from and uh, how people are using it kind of wrong. <laughs> And then listening to how they talk about all the people uh, who were populist back then, um, it's the exact same language. Like you, you can almost swap the headlines in, which is really interesting. It, it, it's basically as usual. Uh, if you don't know the history of the word you're using, you basically know nothing. <laughs> really interesting because it's not like an old term. Like you think, oh, uh, Paul. Paul thinks it's um, it's. Uh, Julius Caesar, he was a populist. 
No, it's an American term, and it's from like uh, eighteen hundred. Uh, I don't know, eighteen ninety or something like that. Julius Caesar. Speaking of which, did you hear about the Sean Hannity book? I did not. Okay, we should, really should do the podcast, but I'll, I'll make this quick. So, Sean Hannity has come up with a new book about freedom and America and whatnot, and he had a Latin phrase, a purported Latin phrase, on the cover of the of the uh, arc. Uh-huh. And it was gobbledygook Latin, and a classics, a classics student pointed it out to them like this makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> and they had so, to change the cover of the book because yeah, they, they basically put. Well, at least it was an art. Uh-huh. They, they put a, they put the phrase into Google Translate. And, oh my god! And yeah, and just got gobbledygook Latin and stuck that on the book, and the classics student was like, "Yeah, this means nothing." I was discussing. Well, yeah, I mean, if if that's an editorial decision, um, it was as editorial stupidity. You you just use Google Translate for your Latin. That's well, yeah, that's a, well. I mean, it's it, it, the grammar in Latin is pretty fucked up <laughs> compared um, it, to regular it's English. Funny because as I was telling to my classics friend Fade, there's a Stephen Baxter novel where the aliens learn Latin because Latin is supposedly the perfect logical language, and I'm and I read that and I was like. What? Are you high? Stephen Baxter, did you never take Latin? I thought they took Latin in Britain and perfect logical language. My what? So, 18 yeah. hours ago, uh, there was a story. Uh, Maureen Dowd, she's a columnist for the New York the Times. Times. Yes, yeah. yeah. She helped yeah, she helped cheerlead the war in Iraq. Oh, yeah, she's life. a brilliant. Um, Maureen Dowd faces backlash. I love this expression. After her column suggests a man and a woman haven't run on a Democratic ticket for 36 years. <laughs> like, Maybe backlash. Wait, 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 wait. Let me think about this. Hasn't <laughs> been in a woman running on a Democratic ticket for 36, not four years, for 36 years. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's like, time for a woman to be on the ballot. <laughs> Like, so yeah. last time was so long ago. It feels like thirty. Like and of course, like people are like, well, is there any way to read this that she's right? <laughs> no. <laughs> and yeah, no, no, no. People are coming up with all sorts of expl- explanations, saying, "Well, you know what she was referring to was the last time a woman ran as a VP." <laughs> So I was trying to slip that in there, right on the Democratic ticket. Hmm. Nope. <laughs> It's okay. It's New York Times. It's a paper record. That's fine. <laughs> Come on. Oh, they only accept the best, Misa. <laughs> <laughs> only people who don't get the Iraq War wrong. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. You want to do a show? Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. <laughs>